This episode is brought to you by Grasshopper Climbing. I've had a lot of great conversations lately on the podcast, and one thing that keeps coming up again and again when it comes to getting better at climbing is consistency. There's no magic hangboard program or bouldering routine that is going to get you super duper strong in six weeks. The key to making lasting gains in your strength and climbing technique is consistency, just climbing and training regularly for years and years. But consistency is hard. If you have kids or you live in the city or you work a nine to five job and only have the evenings free to train and you have to compete with crowds at the gym, it can be really hard to stick to a consistent schedule. Luckily, the folks at Grasshopper Climbing designed the perfect solution. The Grasshopper Board was designed to give you an entire climbing gym experience right in your home. And the best part, they did such a good job with the hold shaping and layout that the Grasshopper Board will be right for you whether you are a total beginner or you climb V15. It's so efficient, it's so good for training, and most importantly, it's so much fun to climb on. But don't take my word for it because the folks at Grasshopper just want you to try out the Grasshopper board and see for yourself. If you want to learn more, head over to grasshopperclimbing.com or check them out on Instagram at grasshopperclimbing. Check out their boards and reach out to their sales team to see which board solution is right for you. And be sure to tell them I sent you because the folks at Grasshopper are offering you guys, listeners to this podcast, $500 off when you order a fully kitted out 8x10 foot Grasshopper board. Or you can save even more if you upgrade to a larger board. Again, that's grasshopperclimbing.com to check out the Grasshopper board and be sure to tell them I sent you. This episode is also brought to you by Athletic Greens. I started taking Athletic Greens earlier this summer. I sip on it first thing in the morning while I'm making my coffee, and it has become one of my favorite parts of my morning routine. As you all know, I prioritize eating whole foods when it comes to my nutrition, but it can be really hard to get fresh produce and high-quality food when you live on the road or travel to remote areas. I'm climbing intensely right now, and this is a perfect example. It's really hard to get fresh produce when you're climbing in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming. But the great news is that one scoop of Athletic Greens has 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. It's like having an all-in-one nutritional insurance. I know that if I take Athletic Greens in the morning, I'm covered for the whole day, no matter what I eat or don't get a chance to eat. To make your decision easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com nugget. Again, that's athleticgreens.com nugget to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. This episode is also brought to you by Rhino Skin Solutions. This stuff is my go-to when it comes to taking care of my skin for climbing. I've been using the repair cream almost every single night here in Ten Sleep, Wyoming. I use it multiple times a night after a climbing day if I have torn skin from sharp crimps or pockets. I come home from the climbing day, I wash my hands, and then I apply the repair cream several times throughout the evening, and it really does wonders to help my skin heal faster and get me back on the rock the next day. I've also been using their performance cream 
about once every day or every other day to keep my skin dry because we're starting to get some humid conditions and some stormy weather here in October in 10 Sleep. If you want to level up your skin game, head over to rhinoskinsolutions.com to check out their great line of products and enter code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order. Again, that's rhinoskinsolutions.com. Use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off the best skincare products in the game. Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt. And my guest today is Lynn Hill. Lynn is a climbing legend. If you don't know much about her, she was the first woman to climb a route rated 512D back in 1979. She was the first woman to climb 514 in 1991, three years before any other woman. And what she is best known for by far is for being the first person to free climb El Capitan via the nose back in 1993. She was the first person to free climb El Cap way before anyone else. And then she went back a year later and freed it in a day. And it's been almost 30 years since she did that. That was 1994. And to this day, only one other person has freed the nose on El Cap in a day. And that is Tommy Caldwell, Mr. El Cap himself. So Lynn was so far ahead of her time and she's still getting after it, still climbing really hard. Lynn invited me to her house in Boulder and we got to sit down and chat for over three hours we covered many, many different topics, including my burning curiosity about her freeing the nose and what that process actually looked like, because I haven't heard much about that before. But yeah, she's just the best. Lynn is 61 years old right now. We talked about how she makes a living now and what her climbing looks like these days. One thing I learned right after finishing this interview is that Lynn climbed her hardest boulder problem ever at age 53. She did a boulder problem called Chablanc in Waco Tanks that's considered hard V11 or V11 slash 12, depending on who you ask, at age 53. So she's a total badass and she's still climbing hard at age 61. This episode was a privilege to say the very least. I'm very excited to share it with you all. And without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with climbing legend and amazing all-around person, Lynn Hill. Any thoughts on those questions I sent you before we dive in here? Anything um, that you're sick of talking about? There's or? so many different um, questions, but uh, one thing that came to mind is I've been working on a climbing technique video for about, I don't know, 14 years now since, uh, well, the idea was before 2008, but I finally said, okay, I'm going to do this in 2008. And I had ideas about what I wanted to do, but you know how projects are like that, especially if you're creating something that doesn't exist. You're forging into new territory. And so I got a lot of footage. It took me a long time to just look through the footage and categorize it in terms of what kinds of techniques I was seeing. And, um, and then the challenge after that was to make graphics to show the forces. And you'll like that because you're an engineer. I show the triangles and different geometry of, you know, your contact points and I use arcs to represent uh, swoops, like momentum or swinging legs or something like that. Um, arrows to show contact direction, which is 
perpendicular to the angle of the hold. Mm -hmm. And then when you're on an overhanging face or a slab, obviously your body's going to try to stay plumb line, um, at least on a slab. On an overhang, it's a little bit different rhythm. But um, I've just been studying movement and trying to categorize all the different techniques. So somebody who's learning to climb, they wouldn't even know what a drop knee is and what's a flag. And so I define it, you know, flag is a counterbalance when you're using the same side opposition with left hand, left foot, for example, and then you're going to use your right leg as a counterbalance. So, I mean, that's may not sound so interesting, but there's no source where you can just go online and find all the techniques. Mm. And, and I tried to do it in order so that you start out on a slab, then you go to vertical faces, which opens up a whole bunch of new techniques and then you can talk about corners and dihedrals and then in overhanging you have roofs and stalactites and pockets. Limestone actually has its own unique kind of contact, um, you know, with pinches and pockets and stuff. So um, I just tried to uh, say a little bit about planning movements and a little bit about the psychology, but I think that would be better covered in a, a medium like a podcast type of mm. um speaking or you could, you know, just film talking about it, but um, it's hard to come up with visuals all the time when you're talking about psychological things. Yeah. The psychology of climbing performance, you mean yeah. in particular? No, you have to stay here. <laughs> no, no talking from you. Anyway. Um, so that's been a, a really long project. And part of the reason it took so long is that it costs money to produce and you can't really do it for very long. It's like doing a podcast. You, you have to kind of call it after a certain amount of time because your brain gets tired. Mm. And the graphics that I was talking about, they didn't even exist um, when we first started doing this. So yeah. I had to get somebody from CU who was in the design department and he had some kind of program that allowed you to make arrows and planes and different things like that. Um, and now they have, Premiere Pro has um, After Effects. So you can use those tools a lot easier now. So it's been a long journey. And um, the person that I work with only works with me once a week. Mm. And, and sometimes there were long periods where we didn't work at all because I was busy. So. Yeah. I'm surprised though. I'm surprised you don't have a climbing company that would want to be involved in this and sponsor the whole thing and expedite the process. Did you approach sponsors for this or did, did it feel important to you to do it on your own for some reason? I got some seed money um, okay. from Petzl. And uh, yeah, I mean, the companies want little bits of information. They A lot of people even tell me still, you should break this up and, and have little chapters. But I don't, I mean, I, I could do that. I could make five minute sections, but I think it's better to have all the information. You can watch as much as it uh, of the, the video as you want, and you know, rewatch sections of it if you, you know, get to the end. You're like, oh yeah, I remember she mentioned this, and then you can go back and watch it. Yeah. Um, How long is this video going to be? It's right now. It's about seventy minutes. Okay. So it's not super long, and actually, it's it's called the fundamentals of climbing, and it's just really what it sounds like. It's the fundamentals of all the different concepts that I could, you know, categorize. And what I'd like to do is continue working on, you know, each of the different categories and expand them. Because you can always get more examples and go into, uh-oh, 
Oh, well. I'm doing a podcast. I'm going to have to call you back. <laughs> okay. I'll call you when I'm done. I will. Okay. All right. Love you too. Bye. Sister Trish. Here, I'll just turn my phone off. Um, so where were we in this? Um, oh, the climbing companies. Yeah. Well, the problem is um, the vision that I had is something that's in my head. And to communicate it, you need tools. You need people that know how to use the tools. I don't know how to use the editing system and Premiere Pro or whatever. I watch it and I, I kind of get the idea of how to do it, but that's not what I want to do with my time to yeah. learn how to edit. I guess if I was more um, inclined to do that sort of thing, then it could have been a good opportunity to learn that. Um, a lot of the professional climbers do that kind of work and they figured out how to edit. And I've, I've done basic edits on, you know, iMovie or something, but, um, and that was just for um, clients doing um, technique workshops and mm. filming them and saying, okay, this is what you were doing. This is what it looks like. Why don't you try this? So I, I use it as a tool so that people see what they're doing. Um, so uh, where am I going with this? I have a question. Yeah. Do you think about your own climbing technique that way, thinking about force vectors and angles and things like that? Because I, like I'm an engineer, I resonate with that, but I don't think I think that way when I climb or when I was learning to climb. I think it it felt intuitive to me to some it degree, is. probably because I'm wired that way. But yeah, do you do you break down climbing techniques that way Actually, or have you in the past? If I'm stumped on a climb, like a, a crux or a boulder problem, let's just say you you don't know how to get past this section, there's a certain logic. And if you really look at the shapes of the holds and, and it happens automatically for you, sort of a natural thing that you see a handhold, you know that you're going to hold it like this, depending on where the next one is. So there's certain rules that we follow. Usually you, you look at at least two handholds in advance, and then you look at where your feet could be in accordance with the shape of that handhold or the next two. So those are the kinds of things that I'm pointing out is like, depending on the configuration of the holds, and, you know, if, if you think about your body as a quadrant, your next hold for your right hand is up in the upper right quadrant, for example. And the next one is over. So you, you already have in your mind that you're going to be crossing over with your left hand. Or maybe you have to imagine there's a long reach to the side. So you want to maximize your left hand when you're reaching really far to the right. So there's certain things that we, we do and it's automatic. Mm -hmm. um, so I just... I want to show people what those techniques are so they understand them and they can recognize. So say you're doing a move to the side, um, it's kind of a shouldery move. You'll have, I mean, you'll see people do this all the time that you pull up to almost like a lock-off position, then you reach to the side. Instead of just hanging low and reaching to the side, it's, it's, it's actually just a question of leverage. Mm. So um, I see configurations and patterns and that's what I'm trying to show. It's like, oh, okay, it's an underclang. So there's there's a certain pattern of how you're going to place your body when you see an undercling. And I look for underclings when I'm trying to make a long reach. If any little undercling is going to be better than a horizontal hold because mm. you're going to be locked off and you won't be able to reach so easily from a horizontal hold. But if you can 
bring your feet up and, and really push off of an undercling hold, you can reach a lot further. Mm. So it's just little things like that. It's yeah. not like um, something that I think about while I'm climbing, unless it's just a snapshot of like, okay, that's that hold looks like a gas stone. So I'm going to get my elbow up and, and be in a, the perfect line, you know, straight across from or perpendicular to the angle of the hold. This is, I love this. I mean, it's, you're helping me appreciate how much of climbing I take for granted at this stage, I think, because those things feel intuitive now, but of course they didn't always feel intuitive. So I'm just trying to imagine like what, how helpful a resource like this might have been for me early on. Like maybe it would have brought about those light bulb moments a lot quicker. That's the idea. Yeah, it's that's just cool. To, to show what is good technique. And then it's easier to have a mental image, a, a visual image in your head and say, oh, this is, you know, a lock-off move and, you know, maybe I should turn my body a little bit or they're just little subtleties that you can use that make it a lot more efficient. Mm -hmm. So where where are you in this process of putting out this video at this point? Almost done. Almost done. Okay. Yeah. And you're also making a documentary right now? Yep. Okay. It's not me that's really making it, but I'm helping. Okay. I've been sort of co, I wouldn't say producing, but like, when we went to Yosemite and filmed with Nina Caprez on the nose, um, I kind of helped put the team together and I, I was the interface with the rangers because we actually got a permit. Now, I don't know if you still need them, but I didn't want to do anything that would be kind of controversial because I'm, you know, obviously people know of me and Yosemite and all of that. And I don't want to, you know, do something that the Park Service would say, this is a bad example of how you conduct yourself. Sure. But anyway, that now I think you can still, you can film in Yosemite without a permit. It, they call it editorial or something. Okay. There's some kind of loophole, <laughs> but whatever. Yeah, I think they, they paid a lot of money to film free solo, mm. I'm pretty sure. Because mm -hmm. they had, I think they had some special equipment, maybe even like a, a drone or something, which is illegal generally. Right, right. I know they, they definitely had... Um, I want to say like robotic cameras. I don't know if that's the right way of saying it, but they had a mm. few cameras set up for the crux so that, so yeah. that, you know, to make sure no human was going to distract Alex on accident when he was doing And the I think they problem. didn't want to be there in case right. he did fall. That would just be horrendous. Right, right, right. Yeah. So scary. It made me sweat just watching I, it. Really? You too? <laughs> oh, okay. Because yeah. my palms were just dripping watching him do that thing. And we all know that he's going to make it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's something I would never do ever. Could you ever have imagined that that would be done in your lifetime? Um, it was talked about for many years. You know, when, who's going to be the person that's going to free solo El Cap? And, you know, by what route? That's the other question. Um, there's the East Face, which is not that hard at all. Um, I think it has been soloed, but that's not the main face, the South Buttress of El Cap. That's a whole different thing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, you know, I can imagine a lot of things, not for myself, but that it would be possible. I guess that's what makes you, you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you imagine free climbing the nose, you know, way before anyone else. Well, a lot of or, people thought it was a good idea. Because, okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a classic historic route, right? Literally in front of everyone's noses on the, you know, the buttress <laughs> of El Capitan. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that people had the 
the idea that you could hang on to such small holds and, you know, use the the crack in the great roof and the changing corners looks pretty featureless. And so it's really just about opposition and getting the techniques just perfect. So it's also a matter of motivation. Mm -hmm. And uh, the nose was a special climb for me. I mean, Yosemite is a special place, first of all, one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. And, you know, to be able to do the first free ascent of a, a historic route like that was something that I thought would be important for women and, and just people in general to be inspired that, you know, you can do things if you really put your mind to it and, and imagine the possibilities. So particularly for women, because there weren't really very many first ascents done by women in Yosemite. Mm-hmm. It's still not actually very many. Right. I love it. I'm so excited to talk more about that because I really, <laughs> something I'm really curious to hear more about is the process of that. Um, because we all know that Lynn Hill freed the nose and then she came back and did it in a day. But I, and I haven't read your book, um, so maybe you cover it there, but I actually haven't heard you talk about the process and, and what was involved there. So I'm very excited to get to that in a little okay. bit. I also have a bunch of listener questions for you, okay. which I'm very excited about. So all I think right. I'll be selfish with you for the first half of the conversation. And okay. then um, it feels important to me to share you with, <laughs> with patrons who submitted questions. There's a lot of really good ones. But I actually want to back up a step and um, I'll share, I'll share uh, a, not even a question, a comment from a listener. This is from Joy Black, who's been on the podcast. And I reached out to patrons and said, Lynn Hill's coming on, submit your questions for her. And Joy just wrote, no question, just so, so, so pumped for this. And so, so, so pumped is all in capitals. And then she shares some great emojis. And Joy speaks for all of us. Um, we all love you. I'm thanks. so I'm so glad to be here with you. I've been so looking forward to this, and thanks for doing this. Of course, yeah, it's a pleasure. And I I want to ask you about fame, actually, um, <laughs> and just what that feels like to you. I just did an interview with Ryan Devlin from uh, he's the host of the Struggle Climbing Show, and he's had you on, and he's a Hollywood actor, so he's met lots of big shot people. And I asked him like, who who have you been the most starstruck by? And you were at the top of his list. Hmm. Yeah. And I thought that was just so interesting. And he, you know, he was really funny. He told some self-deprecating stories and made it sound worse than it was. Ryan, if you're listening, I listened to your your guy's interview and I thought it was great. He did a great job, but he was just like, you know, he's like, I, he was just so enamored. He's like, <laughs> it was so cool when you did this and that. And, but I, I've been able to encounter you a couple of times. Um, I met you in Waco Tanks. I was very flattered that you remembered that. Mm-hmm. Didn't expect you to. And then I remember, I don't think we met. I don't think we interacted at all. But I first saw you in 10 Sleep, I think the summer before that. This was like two summers okay. ago. Mm-hmm. And it was a busy weekend day at Crag Six. And I think you showed up with uh, Robin Herbisfield, Rabbit 2. Mm-hmm. I think Bobby Bensman was there that day as well. And I just remember thinking, like everyone there... Probably not everyone, actually. I, I wonder if maybe some of the younger climbers don't know who you are, just learning. But, a lot, you know, you're still a climber. That's something I appreciate so much about you is that you're just a lifer and you're still out there doing it all the time. And I remember thinking that day, like, what is it like to be Lynn Hill now? Because you still just want to climb, but I'm sure you get recognized all the time. And I'm sure you get a lot of that funny, like awkward, strange energy, you know, that I think climbers interact with a lot more than 
other people because we meet our heroes at the crags. We all go climbing at the same places. And so I've experienced it. Like I'm in Bishop, California and there's Alex Honnold trying this boulder, you know, years ago before I was doing this. And the question I'm getting to is what, what does that feel like? And what makes you feel the best when you meet a climber who clearly knows who you are and they either interact with you or don't, you know, cause I've done both. I've like, I'm that person just wants to go climb. You know, I'm just going to like give them space, let them do their thing. They're probably just wanting to enjoy the climbing day. I've also approached people and said like, Hey, it's so nice to meet you. I really admire you and blah, blah, blah. Um, but it always feels a little awkward. What feels best to you when people, when you meet That's people at the question. crack? Um, <clears throat> being me, um, is it's strange because I don't consider myself some kind of famous person. I, I just look at the world through my eyes and, and climbing is a very natural sport. It's very approachable if you're out at a crag and somebody sees you. And some people will approach me with that real starstruck. Like they, they'll like, I'm not even worthy. And they'll do some crazy things. And that makes me feel a little uncomfortable because they're people and I'm a person too. I mean, we're all just people. So I don't want to be put on a pedestal. Uh, I just want to be treated like a normal person in a normal conversation. It's it's nice that people say you've you're the reason that I started climbing, or they'll say a lot. There's been a lot of different comments, but that's a common one, um, especially for women. They they read my book and they decided to start climbing, kind of thing, or you know your life is so inspiring. Thank you so much for all you do, those kinds of things. And it's nice. And um, my approach usually is just to be friendly with people and ask them questions because then it's more of an exchange. It's mm. not just me being talked at or um, being interviewed by people. And, and, you know, they'll ask me questions like, okay. So the other day at the, cr the cr crag, they said, all right, so we have a question. Which way do you put your carabiners on, on your harness. Is it out or in? Out or in. <laughs> and I had a reason for having them, I guess, out. So actually, which one's out? Out is the gate opening. I mean- I would think out would be gates facing out. Gates facing out. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So mine is facing out. And the reason I do that is I, when I'm grabbing something, my wrist is in this position. I can pull it off and then use it, right? Mm -hmm. If- I have to grab it and do this move. See that wrist, it's, it bends backwards. It's a less efficient way. Interesting. And it's more pumping on, on the back of your forearm to do that. It's just a subtle thing. But if you're tired and you really wanna do something efficiently, for me, that seems awkward to lift it like that instead of just taking it and boop. You see what I mean? Yeah, I'm just sitting here pantomiming it and try, <laughs> cause I'm the opposite. I do gates in. And, I think uh, taller people tend to do that. And it, okay. I don't know if it has to do with the length of your arms. Oh, that's interesting. Because it would be easier if you had long arms to just, you know, take it off like that. Yeah. I mean, it's not a huge difference, obviously. But well, it's, it's interesting because I've always heard the argument for gates out. Um, that usually comes from big wall climbers who climb in chimneys. And, you know, I've, I've heard this argument before that if your gates are in and you're in a chimney, it's more likely that you'll accidentally unclip a piece. Huh, okay. But that's not the reason for you. No. Okay. And if I were in a chimney, I wouldn't rack very much on my harness because if you're in a chimney, chances are you're going to be using the side of your body, maybe hip scumming. 
And I don't want anything on the side, especially the one that's inside that's going to be in contact with the rock. So I'll use a gear sling mm. or, um, yeah, gear sling's the easiest because you can move it out of the way or just rack it on the other side mm-hmm. so that it's not in where the rock is connecting. So, yeah, um, back to the question of what's it like. Um, so I guess it's a, it is a little strange to be, considered famous when I'm just a a natural person that started climbing so long ago that there just weren't that many people climbing. So it's kind of a a novelty as well Mm. that uh, climbing has changed so much and that it's become a thing where you can be like this famous international person, which wasn't the case when I, or at least not my impression when I first started climbing. Do you get recognized now more now or, you know, how does that compare to like back in the mid nineties when you were at the top of your game, you just finished competition climbing and things like that. I mean, there's so many more people now. Well, you know, in the nineties, there was no internet, (laughs) which is a huge thing. No, it's, it's funny, but it changes a lot of things because it's, I think it's easier to see pictures of somebody and um, podcasts and all this stuff, all this media that we can create since the 90s, it's changed the culture of climbing as well. And I think the fact that there weren't that many women when I started climbing means that I was the go-to a lot for Mm. like somebody wants a quote from a woman or they want a perspective from a woman, they're going to call me because I'm the easy person to recall, you know, oh, there's Lynn Hill. So um, I've been a reference point for a long time. And so that kind of perpetuates the whole thing. But the younger climbers, I'm not so sure they know or even care so much. Um, I mean, the ones that are into history um, and like to read books about climbing and adventures and all that, I think that's a different type of curiosity. But there's a lot of people that just start climbing for fitness in the gym or because they have a friend and they don't really approach climbing with the same kind of uh, reverence for the culture. Mm. And it's just like another activity that they're going to add to their list. Right. Yeah. That's so interesting. Do you, I'm also curious if you feel starstruck by anybody because you've met everybody. I mean, you've traveled all over the world for climbing. So I'm sure you've met most of the top climbers and you've also, I, (laughs) I was catching up on your YouTube channel this morning, actually. I had never stumbled into it before. And I watched like a seven minute video of you on David Letterman oh, um, right. from, yeah. from 1989 is amazing. You're teaching him how to belay and then teaching him how to climb. And it was just great. Um, yeah. Is there anyone that you feel starstruck by or have felt starstruck by? Does anyone stand um, out? Well, I guess movie stars would be, I wouldn't say starstruck, but they would be a novelty. You know, one time I was visiting my sister in Santa Monica and we we're standing in line because there's this place that she said, let's go get some chicken from this place, you know, Brentwood, that area. And um, I turn around and there's Harrison Ford standing behind me <laughs> and nobody's bugging him. Nobody's saying, hey, are you Harrison Ford? Because that's like the question, right? Somebody comes up to you. Are you Lynn Hill? Mm. They, they recognize you. So they kind of know it's you. But, you know. Do you ever maybe, say no? Actually, somebody asked me if I had ever said no. And I and one time I was joking with a friend and I said, no, she, but yeah, she looks a little bit like me. And I, and I was kidding with them and then they didn't really know what to think. <laughs> but I, 
in the end, I think they did know it was me, but yeah, I was just playing with them. Uh, but yeah, Harrison Ford, I didn't say anything to him, say, Hey, are you Harrison Ford? Because I know how it is to be him. And mm. I would never want to harass him in his neighborhood place where he's just trying to be a normal person. Mm. And I think that that's the ethic around there because he probably has been spotted numerous times at his local place and people just let him be. Mm. But maybe that's isolating too. Like you don't want to be ignored completely. You know, you just want to be a person and have a normal interaction. Mm -hmm. I mean, that gets us back to this, what feels best to you question. I'm interested in that because I've just doing the podcast, this has started to happen a few times where I'll get recognized at the crag. And the thing that feels best to me is when someone just acknowledges it. Like, oh, are you Steven? Oh, do you do the nugget? I love that show. Like, thanks for mm-hmm. thanks for all the work you do. You know, that, yeah. that feels great to me. And you can kind of tell when someone knows who you are, but they don't want to say anything. And a lot of times that just feels awkward, yeah. you know, but I... But I get it. Like they also want to like, you know, he's probably just trying to have a climbing day, whatever. I mean, the same thing that I did to you in 10 sleep. So. Uh, you know, I think it's fine. It, it, people are people. And if they want to say something, uh, words of appreciation, that's just nice, you know. And I try to, like I said, bring them into the conversation and ask where they're from, you know, questions about their climbing and what they're interested in. And then it feels more natural mm. to me. And, and I have been in situations where people don't want to say anything. Like one time there was a, a group of, you know, friends climbing and I walked over and I, I wasn't climbing right next to him, but I was within earshot. And I heard him say, LH, LH, like, <laughs> as though their You're friends gonna are going to understand. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to put it together. And so yeah. I was probably the only one who did understand what he meant, but I just kind of laughed. Yeah. <laughs> I call that the Lynn Hill spotting. Lynn Hill spotting. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, people try to be discreet, but that's that wasn't very discreet. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <clears throat> I also want to ask you about accomplishments. And I want to get to the nose, like I said. But there's so many other things that we could talk about. I'm really interested to hear what stands out to you when you look back at your life of climbing. Um, and I'm just going to read some of these things. I was you know, refreshing myself on your resume and prep for this. And you were, as far as I know, you can't believe everything you read on the internet, but I believe you were the first woman to climb 12B, C, D, and 13A. First I woman don't to... even know about the B, C. Okay. That would be hard to know, 12B, because that's like, I mean, going back to before the internet and all that in the 80s, I was definitely climbing that grade, like, uh, I think Ofer Broke we did in 1979, and that's like 12D. Mm. And so I think that for sure was before like Catherine Destevelle in France, she did uh, Take It or Leave It, another 12D, I think. Yeah. Anyway, she, she came by later with those grades. And actually France at that time in the 80s, they were not even really pushing the grades as much. I mean, the first place was Bukes mm-hmm. with La Rose et Le Vampire and Le Mission. Um, 13D. Yeah. They were, they were just starting to do that in the mid-80s when they invited me to tour some of the, their famous crags. So we went to, well, we flew into Paris. We went to Les Sossois, which is just outside of Paris. 
And I was so impressed with the food and the rock was just so different. I'd never seen limestone. I didn't know what it was. <laughs> and I just fell in love with it. It was mm. an awesome trip. But How long it, had you been climbing at that point? Um, I started at the age of 14 in okay. 1975. And my first trip was in uh, 1986 okay. to Europe. So yeah, not that many years, I guess. 11 that's not that many. Um, but it really opened my eyes going to Europe just for many reasons, just the culture, the the rock itself, the attitudes of the people. There was a whole lot more appreciation for climbers and climbing culture and especially alpinism. And I think mm. part of it is just the culture. Compared to America, you mean? Yeah, compared yeah, to America. That makes sense at that time, yeah. You could see cliffs in every village. It's, mm. they're, they're accessible to almost every part of France. I guess maybe Western France, like the um, Bordeaux area. That's my son, actually. Oh. <laughs> uh, I think he's coming through the gate. Do you want me to? No. Okay. We're fine. Um, so, yeah, in the Bordeaux region, there's not that much rock, but there's more sailing and stuff like that. Yeah, he's going to play his drum set. Maybe you can <laughs> go give him a few little pointers. <laughs> Do you want to go out, D? You want to go out? Okay, come here, lay down then. Derpy, derp, come lay down. He'll make a lot of noise if he's walking around. Here. Sit down. Okay, you can go lay down there. Go on. Okay, go on. Come on. There you go. That's a good boy. All right. Um, so where were we? We're in France. Uh, we're talking about the culture and and the things that I loved about being in France, um, I loved learning to speak French. That was something I'd do on rest days. So I would listen to the radio, watch TV, write in a journal, um, just to hear the sounds and to get my mouth to do the right sounds. You know, like there's some R's in, in pronunciation in French that's kind of tricky. Sure, yeah. Like a uh, pocket, a hole is trou, you know, and you have to mm. say it in your throat. It's a weird are. Um, so I was pretty entertained with learning. Um, I'd go to a bookstore and get like a book on geology and, you know, like a textbook kind of thing. So I'd learn vocabulary that was not necessarily related to climbing, but just mm. everything, you know, right. just learning all the different things about the language. How are you making a living at this time? Like in your mid twenties? Well, oh, at that time? Yeah. At that Let's time, see. sorry. Yeah. Um, in 1985, I graduated from SUNY New Paltz. I got a degree in biology. I was going to go on and become a physical therapist. Okay. But I, I say that I got kidnapped by the climbing world <laughs> instead. <laughs> um, and also I just, I decided that it probably would be way more interesting to follow my passion and just go climbing and do what I love. And... You know, I didn't really think I would be able to make a living through climbing. So I kind of figured, well, I'll just enjoy it now. And I was making a little bit of money through prize money at the competitions. And my first contract was in 1988. And that was with Schnard Equipment. Okay. So I started to make a little bit of money with uh, Schnard and they were importing Scarpa shoes. And so I think Scarpa might have subsidized a little bit of my contract, but it came from Chenard Equipment. 
So um, for that, I was doing obviously some marketing things um, and design um, if they were interested and then slideshows. And so I would be using slides from whoever was with me in the competitions. I couldn't take pictures of myself, but I would get pictures and nobody knew what was really going on in Europe. Again, no internet. So I was showing them what I discovered over mm. in Europe and, hey, look at these comps. This is what's going on. And, and at first they were on natural rock and then they moved on to these, what seemed like really avant-garde climbing walls. The one that was in Paris the first time was actually a pretty cool wall. Uh, Jean-Marc Blanche is this designer and he, he made these volumes, like this big round disc that you could turn. Whoa. And so that was one way of changing the grades of the roots or changing the configuration. He also had volumes like uh, features that stuck out. And so, you know, that was a, a pretty expensive wall. Yeah. And, and also an expensive venue in the center of Paris at the Palais de Omnisport or whatever. And uh, the problem with it was that it was too slow. Mm. You know, climbers, you know, if you give... 10 minutes to each climber and they're hanging and resting and checking it out and down climbing and whatever. It's just not that interesting mm -hmm. relative to today's more dynamic style. And I think that's why it's evolved in this sort of parkour-esque movement mm -hmm. because it is more interesting and it's fast. Uh, the walls are not as high. So it's, it's really changed the athlete, the climber. Mm -hmm. You know, if right. I were to join or if I were to get into climbing at this time, and, and follow that same path, go to competitions, I don't think I would even qualify. I don't think I would be anywhere in the ranks because that's not the kind of climber I am. Mm. I'm more of a rock climber anyway, but, um, and I like walls. It's not that I don't like them. It's just that it's a different approach. It's a different activity. Right. And also physiologically, it's different. Right. Yeah, watching someone crank on tiny little cramps just it doesn't translate to the viewer, right? It's hard to appreciate if you're not a climber yourself, or even if you are, it's like, well, it's probably a bad hold. It's probably hard, but you can't visually see it, you know, whereas if someone flies through the air and does like a double clutch or something, it's like, whoa. That's, yeah, it's that's much crazy. more impressive. Right. But they, they don't even film it oftentimes where you can see what they're hanging on to. Mm -hmm. If you're looking at a competitor from far away, from behind, or even if you're there and, in, in, you know, watching them, up close, it's kind of hard to see what they're actually hanging on to. Right. Mm -hmm. And it does make a difference, obviously, you know, between a smaller hold and a bigger hold, uh, you know, but unless you're on the wall and feeling it, it's it's kind of hard to relate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But those bigger volumes, you can see it. It's like, oh, that looks improbable. Yeah. How are they going to do this? Yeah. Well, a lot of the holds are flat. It's a lot of compression climbing. You're just, you know, pushing against pressing against these flat surfaces, which takes a lot of strength. Mm -hmm. And I think people can understand that that is very difficult because they're like, there's no hold there. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay, so getting back to accomplishments, um, likely the first woman to climb 12D then in 79, first woman to climb 14, 514 in 91, um, three years before any other woman. First woman to on-site, 13B in 92. And then of course, free the nose, 93, free it in a day, 94. And the nose, I mean, everything else is just kind of dwarfed by the nose. And I'm curious, what stands out to you when you think back on your life of climbing? Are there other chapters or ascents or accomplishments? I mean, you also won like 30 international competitions. Um, 
what are the things that kind of rise to the top for you that feel most memorable or that you feel most proud of? I just, I think that being on that forefront of all the changes that happened from when I started climbing in 1975 and just the whole evolution of style mm. and just being on that crest of the wave that, you know, is constantly breaking and, you know, just being there is, is kind of a, a novelty. And I wouldn't consider myself on the edge of it now, but I feel that I'm, I'm in touch with the people that are, and it, and it feels like I'm connected to the community still. Not that it really matters whether I'm doing it or not. I just like being connected to those people and climbing with them whenever, you know, people that are, let's just use examples. Um, there's Rob in Herbersfield that lives in this community that obviously developed ABC Climbing and, and a whole community of young crushers that are super psyched. Actually, um, Colin Duffy was discovered by a friend of mine. He was climbing at uh, a gym in Denver, I think. And she watched him climb and you could just see his determination. She's like, you know what? You need to go to this gym in Boulder. You are at that level. And she was absolutely right. And Robin probably thanked her many times for <laughs> helping out. That was actually, um, I don't know if you know who Craig Lubin was. Mm -hmm. um, no. Yeah, he he actually passed away uh, about 11 years ago now. He was in an ice climbing accident where I think with all the global warming, he was climbing somewhere outside of uh, Seattle in the uh, Olympic mountains or something. And he planted his ax in the ice and it broke. It was so brittle and chunks of ice came down and that's what actually killed him was the oh, ice wow. falling. Um, but his wife and daughter still climb and they're the ones that discovered Colin. Wow. Yeah. But anyway, so there's there's a lot of people in town. Then there's the younger generation, Sasha DeJulian. Um, I have a project with her that um, I, I decided to use this experience to create something with her and something that, you know, being that she's a professional climber and, you know, I don't know if I would consider myself a professional climber. I was, I think, but I'm still involved in the community, obviously. And I figured, you know, she and I could put a route together, um, find it, bolt it and send it. And then, you know, that's something that we've contributed to our community. And so she liked the idea and it's been a bit of a journey because the first application people were like, oh no, you can't, you can't put a route on the maiden when there's an existing route. And the existing route zigzags, it's called the Kordalki and it zigzags up the face. And our route, I told them in the application or told them, I, told, I wrote that we would not add bolts to an existing line because I am a old school climber. And I, that's one of the rules that you respect. You don't add a bolt. And one of the people that was actually complaining did add a bolt to that existing route. And it wasn't really necessary, but you know, there, there was a hard move. And I think there was an old bolt underneath the overhang. And so they, I think they placed one a little bit higher. Okay. Anyway, the point being that we sussed it out. We had to do a lot more research than anyone else that submits a proposal because our name suggestion was Vamos Las Chicas. And so there was some comments about, you know, there was one comment apparently that was 
removed from the website because it was misogynistic and um, that was disturbing. I didn't see it, so I don't know what it said. But um, obviously they they assumed that there were women behind this route and that maybe we were not competent and wouldn't respect that this is an old existing route. But if you look at this wall, it's prime real estate on this overhanging face, so beautiful. And there's really nothing close to it. There's Ostalawako, which is on the right side. And this kind of takes a similar sort of diagonaling path up the, the wall. It'll be a three-pitch route. So the second application process is coming up September 1st. And well, actually, it's a public meeting. So you can go there and raise your hand if you want you know, to vote for the route. And um, usually routes pass because if you're volunteering to put up a route, it's a lot of work right. and it should be, you know, really appreciated. I think it takes time. It takes experience. Um, it takes a lot of energy because you got to lug all this stuff up there and, and maybe sometimes pull off loose pieces of rock and right. yeah. it can be even dangerous, you know, and getting bolts on a really overhanging face is quite difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if people will know what we're talking about. So actually, can we see the maiden from here? No, you can't. Okay, but it's up it's, in the flat irons, right? It's just yeah. like kind of on the far side. It's there. a beautiful view. I could show you some pictures, but when you get to the top of the formation, you're looking out across Boulder and towards Kansas. It's mm. pretty good view. Yeah, yeah, it, it looks amazing. I've never climbed up there. I've seen some amazing photos of Ethan Pringle trying uh, the 14C up there, whatever mm -hmm. the name Made of that thing is. Made in time. Made in time, mm -hmm. that's right. Um, so the application process, I mean, there's a similar thing in rifle, um, but that doesn't happen everywhere. So here you have to apply and get get a permit to bolt new routes. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Okay. So you, there's different committees for each region. So the Flatirons is one and um, Boulder Canyon would be a different one. Um, I'm not sure how many other organizations there are, but I know there are those two. And it's a fair process. The people that are on the board or whatever in this group, they are experienced climbers and they're volunteering their time. And it's really just to make sure that people are making good decisions and don't create problems putting in too many bolts or not respecting the rock in some way. Gotcha. Okay. So cool. I hope you get approved and get to bolt that thing and climb it with Sasha. That'd be amazing. Well, she's busy. She's um, in Spain right now. Okay. And she'll come back and she's got all these things planned. So I, I just hope that we have enough time to really focus on it before winter. Mm. So she's back November 2nd. And that, actually these days, that's not too late in the season. Mm -hmm. You can have really good weather in November, actually any month of the year. You can yeah. still have warm, dry, sunny weather. Talking about being at the crest of, on the crest of this wave, you know, the evolution of climbing and really being a part of that. What excites you or who excites you the most right now? Hmm. Well, um, I can't say that I follow the competitions enough to say, you know, I'm, I mean, obviously Yanya is amazing to watch, but all those women and, and men at that level are just amazing. You have to be so strong and you could see it. Um, on the American side, yeah, um, obviously Brooke is, is a friend of mine and Natalia Grossman and um, Sean Bailey and 
Nathaniel Coleman. I haven't seen him too much in competitions. I, I, I wonder if he took a break, but um, Sean Bailey really is a beautiful climber to watch. And um, he's on the smaller side and, and actually in one of the more recent competitions, I, I saw him look over his shoulder and look at, you know, just this horrible flat surface of the wall. And, and he knew he wasn't going to be able to get his foot up there. So he tried to jump to this hold. But I think if he were taller, it might've been an easier move. Mm. Um, other people commented about that on that one particular um, competition route. And Adam looked just amazing. Adam Ondra, he's one of the most impressive climbers of all, just because he's so smooth and he can look at the wall and see his body positions almost 100% accurate. <laughs> you know, to be able to climb, what was the hardest thing he did? Like nine, no, not a nine A, eight C plus or something. He's flashed some really hard stuff. Yeah, yeah. I um, still the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life in real life was him on siding Just Do It at Smith Rock. Mm. I was back there that day and it was the most exciting and incredible thing I've ever seen. Yeah. And it just looked like he was red pointing. It just, mm -hmm. I, I kept having to remind myself the entire time he's on siding right now. He's never done these moves before because he was just executing them perfectly. No hesitation. It was just incredible to watch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So he can look at the shapes of the holds know which hand is going to go where and almost even figure out this sequence of when you bring your hand up or a foot up, you know, those kinds of decisions. I think it's really hard to do when you're looking at a wall that's kind of far away. Mm -hmm. you know, for me, I, I don't really know how my body's going to fit in once you get past, you know, 50 feet up or something. It's hard to see. But he has really good vision and he has a, a long neck, which I actually think is helpful. If you're hmm. on the wall and you lean out to, to see. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So it's actually an advantage to have a long neck. <laughs> Besides it's cool, you know, the European long neck. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, but that's really interesting. So it sounds like it's more the people really at the forefront, at the highest level of competition climbing right now that excite you more so than... Well, actually, no, I, I also think that people going on trips is is really interesting too. They mm. come back, you know, most people that are at that level, professional climbers have a crew of people that will get photos and video. And so it's nice to see what they're actually doing. And sometimes it's it seems like they're just doing another trip to a, an exotic place because nobody's been there. So, you know, that's an easy sale, you know, to get it funded. But I, I like the trips that really, it's like, you know, a prize and it's a beautiful aesthetic climb and the movement's interesting and the story's interesting, you know, why they chose that. And, and sometimes there's a story about, you know, a historical climber that, you know, went to this place, you know, like the old Manahoy or something out in Scotland. And, and people like to go back and, and revisit those places just because, you know, imagining yourself back in, you know, 19, whatever, you know, when these climbs were just considered crazy and dangerous and they actually probably were because they didn't have as good a gear as we have now. Right. But yeah, I, I love the story. I love the, uh, the combination of the aesthetics and, and the personalities. What about the cutting edge? You know, what feels most exciting to you as far as that goes? Is it you know, is it the Dawn Wall or something even harder potentially than the Dawn Wall on, on El Cap? Or is it the possibility of, 
516, you know, coming into existence someday or a, a woman climbing 15C or, yeah, which of those things excite you the most if, if anything comes to mind? Well, um, I, I've heard recently that Sean did maybe one of the hardest boulder problems in the world, which is, you know, it took him several months out in Magic Forest in Switzerland. And I can respect that too. You know, it's not my thing. I wouldn't spend three months on a boulder problem, but to get that level, you know, to, to be able to do that requires such a high level of commitment and fitness and focus and just, he was going to stay there until he did it. Yeah. Sean Rabitou for people listening. It's funny that you brought him up because I actually was talking to Drew Ruana about him last night and it just, Sean's a really private guy and he hasn't talked about like two of the hardest things he's ever done yet. He hasn't really put them out there as far as I know. Hmm. Um, so I just learned about this last night, which was pretty exciting. Yeah. I think that the reason is that he's probably going to do some sort of project with it, you know, mm. like a film about it. Even though it's one boulder problem, there's probably a lot of preparation mm -hmm. and, you know, just what goes on in his head about it. Right. Yeah. Okay. I want to, let's dive into the nose. I want to hear about your process. And I didn't, know this until I was prepping for this conversation, but you first tried to free the nose in 1989. Is that right? No. No? Okay. The internet let me down. The inter Well, 1989? Yeah. Was it? Uh-uh. Okay. When did you first try to free it? Um, well, I went to Yosemite. Um, I was working with this French filmmaker from Chamonix and he's like, oh, yeah, let's go to Yosemite and, you know, you can climb the nose with Hans, who had invited me. He's always inviting me. Let's do the nose. Let's do the record. You know, you and me. <laughs> Sounds and, on brand. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so I said, sure, I'll do the nose with you in a day. And the reason I did was so that I could look at the possibilities of free climbing it. Because I was on a trip and I saw John Long and he's like, you know, Lenny, you ought to try free climbing the nose. And it was at that point where I felt like, I kind of was going to retire from my professional role as a climber because I'd stopped the competition and I figured, well, who's going to pay you to climb? You know, th the whole idea of getting funded on expeditions and the whole marketing thing wasn't really happening at that point to the level that it is now, obviously. So being a professional meant you had to compete, you know. So it was a little bit of a retirement gesture. I thought, well, I've been training and climbing for competitions. I'm not doing that anymore, but maybe I can do something really special on the rock that combines all of my skills and background as a trad climber and the sport climbing skills that I've learned climbing on limestone and traveling all over the place. So that was really my motivation to, you know, try to do like a masterpiece climb. Is that why John said that, you think? Like, was he just seeing all those skills in you and realizing that you might be the person that could bring them all together? And Well, I think that John, he knew where I was at in my life, for one, but we've been friends since I was 18 years old. And I think that his role in my life had a lot to do with um, throwing down the gauntlet and saying, Lynn, you could break the world record in the bench press. And I'd be like, uh, maybe. And I... I got to 150 pounds and I'm like, you know what? It's making my arms look a little weird. I, I don't really <laughs> like this. And it wasn't fun. It was just, you know, something, it was a challenge. So I, I dropped it. But he's the guy that was always saying, why don't you try that? And let's let's do the first free ascent over here. And, and so he 
that was his thing. He really liked breaking down those barriers and it really didn't occur to me, you know, mm. I wasn't entering the sport to do that. It was just something that I loved to do. And, and then I found myself in this group of stone masters that that's what they were doing is pushing the level of free climbing at that time, wherever they were. So it was just something that started with this group of people, specifically John. And it was like, yeah, well, why not? Why that, that hasn't been done. Let's try it. That's really interesting because I just, I mean, I was kind of imagining or creating this version of you in my head before sitting down to do this today, just assuming that you had so much drive to be the first woman to do this and this and this and this and all these things. But it sounds like the things just presented themselves and you were just doing what you loved, which was climbing. Is that is that right? It was more the second thing? Yeah, okay. true. That's yeah, I think <laughs> it's, it can be deceiving because the way you might look at um, I don't know, it would be an ad or a story or something like that. Um, it might look like it's glorifying these things more than um, the reality. No, I'm not explaining this very well, but um, I could see how you would think that. And then now talking to me, you, you probably get a better idea that I'm I'm not this person that's super type A and trying to break records all the time. That's, right. that's not who I am. Right. Because it made me curious. I was wondering... I've just been thinking about this over the last like week or two. And I was wondering like, what keeps the fire stoked for you? Assuming that that was who you were, you know, like you had this type A sort of let's get after it drive and what allowed you to continue appreciating and enjoying climbing, um, you know, not being able to push the limit anymore, not being able to climb as hard as you did in 94, for instance. Mm -hmm. That's part of life though. Right, right. I was talking to my friend, Mari Gingri who I've been friends with since I think probably about the age of 18. So many, many years. And we love to talk about climbing and culture. And one of the things that came up today had to do with um, aging actually. And just the idea that you're not going to continue optimizing and getting better and better and better your whole life. At a certain point, you're going to reach your, whatever your top is or was. And then, you know, your body's going to be less and less efficient as you get older. And that's just the way it is. You can be wiser, maybe, and you might climb better in a certain sense of efficiency, but you're not going to necessarily be breaking records as you get older. And that's just the way it is. Does and it bother you at all? I think it's something that most humans would probably not be psyched about. <laughs> Like getting older and looking at death, uh, you know, I mean, it's not the most enjoyable thought, but it's just reality. And, you know, life can be surprising and it, it can be difficult and there's a lot of ups and downs and um, you don't get to choose them. You don't get to choose a lot of that. And mm. so I think it's important to be appreciating what you have when you have it and even if you're not climbing, you know, super strong, that's not why I climb. It's not just about performance and about, oh, I did this really hard climb. I think that kind of almost takes away from the enjoyment of climbing. If it's always like this job, you have to tick off these routes and ah, I got to yeah. get this done. And it's, I think it's really, again, that cliche of it's about the journey, not about getting there. And that's why I still like to climb because I like the journey. I like the problem solving and 
you can't always do a perfect job. That's what makes it special when you do have a, a like one of those flow moments. And, you know, it's just what we chase after is, is optimizing and, and getting better and better. And, and I, I like the process of optimizing and it carries over into my life. It's not just about being an efficient climber. It's about efficiency in a lot of different ways. And we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Frictitious Climbing. Today, I want to tell you about two of my favorite products from Frictitious. First up is the Easy Board, spelled E-Z Board. The Easy Board is hands down the most versatile hangboard I have ever seen. It's portable, meaning you can take it with you to the crag, hang it from a tree or from a bolt at the sport cliff. And what makes the Easy Board unique is that it comes with a mounting plate that allows it to be used as a traditional hangboard as well. In just a few seconds, you can mount it above your doorway at home in any of four different orientations and use it just like a regular hangboard. It's light, it's compact, and it covers all your bases. Second is the hangboard doorway mount. The hangboard doorway mount is perfect for climbers who don't have a great spot for a hangboard or who can't drill into their wall. It's a great way to train in your home or apartment, and you can even have Frictitious install one of their hangboards for you, so when it arrives, you can be up and training in minutes. Head over to frictitiousclimbing.com and use code NUGGET at checkout for free shipping on your order. That's frictitiousclimbing.com and use code NUGGET at checkout for free shipping. Train, solve, climb with Frictitious Climbing. This episode is also brought to you by Arcteryx. When Jordan Cannon, a young climber infatuated with climbing history, meets climbing legend Mark Hudon, a Yosemite big wall free climbing pioneer, they form an unlikely partnership around a common goal. Jordan wants to free climb the free rider on El Capitan in a day, and Mark hopes to free the route in as many days as it takes and accomplish his lifelong goal of free climbing El Capitan. Follow their story in Free As Can Be, a short climbing film brought to you by Arcteryx. I just watched the film earlier today. It's 31 minutes long. It's so well done. It's a story of climbing partnership and adventure. And if you love this podcast, and especially if you loved my episode with Jordan Cannon, or if you love this episode with Lynn and hearing about stories from Yosemite or from El Cap, then I know you'll love the film. So check it out. Head over to YouTube and search for Arcteryx Free As Can Be, or use the direct link right there in your podcast app to watch the full 31-minute film for free. Once again, you can head over to YouTube and search for Arcteryx Free As Can Be, or use the direct link right there in your podcast app to watch the full 31-minute film for free. Arcteryx presents Free As Can Be, and we hope you enjoy the film. All right, back to the show. Are things that are challenging for you now, is that process of engaging with that just as satisfying as it was when that hard thing was the nose? When you were at the top of your game? Mm, I think the nose was a very special experience because the nature of the route, the, the history and all of that, and just it was exciting to be there at a time when people didn't believe that that was going to happen. People really you really think you can do that? You know, people would say things like that to me, you know, especially when I wanted to do it all free in a day. Like, you think you can do that? And, uh, well, you can do it if you really put your mind to it and, and look for the solutions. But if you're listening to those people saying, oh, you really think so? It's like, well, maybe I can't. Then you, mm -hmm. you start doubting yourself. 
there's always that to deal with, you know, even when you're about to send your project or something, there's that, if you let that little moment of doubt enter your mind, it can distract you and take you away from actually following through with what you need to do to get that next move, you know? So, um, but to answer your question, if it, if it's more or the same uh, level of ex uh, excitement or satisfaction, I think it would depend on the day and how I feel. And I think it's always satisfying to succeed when you thought you were maybe going to fall off and you just kept it together and focused on looking at that hold and not giving up. And I think a lot of people, and myself included, um, when you're getting pumped and you're looking at that next hold, what matters is what's in your head. Do you, you see that hold and think you have a chance or are you just going to know I'm too tired and kind of let go? Because I think you can hang on longer than you think you can. And that's a physiological fact that your brain kind of shuts down before your, your hand or your forearms mm. or whatever will give way. And so it's, it's fun to play with that threshold and, and kind of be an observer of your own mind and thinking and, and I prepare before I even step off the ground. If it's going to be an important climb to me and I want to make it and I know there's going to be those moments, I tell myself before I even go that I'm going to focus on the hold that I need to go to and follow through 100%. And usually it works. And that's satisfying just yeah. because it was hard and I pushed through. That's the satisfaction. Do you step off the ground th already thinking about that one move that you think is going to be the red point crux for you? Well, I would think about it in a like a visualization process, maybe. But the first time I did my uh, 514 in France, Mass Critique, I would think about it in the bathtub. I would think about it before going to bed. I would think about it after being on the climb, which is more fresh. And I would try to remember the key points of the moves that made the difference. Like, was it shifting my hip a little bit more or, you know, what was the thing that made the difference? And I tried to imprint that and remember that and then practice it mentally. And so before I step off the ground, it's more of a general state of excitement. Mm. And uh, sometimes I yawn. That's like a, a thing that I noticed when I did running races, that when I was super like excited to start the race, I would have this uh, yawn. I'd have to get this yawn out and I have to get the right breath, just the, the right amount of oxygen in my lungs. So it was a weird thing, but I think it, the yawn does help you gain extra uh, oxygen for your lungs. Right. So That's, I wonder if that, that nervous energy, if you're just subconsciously like, <laughs> like shallow breathing, you know, and building up to needing to take this big yawn, deeper breath. Or something it's some kind of relaxation thing too. Hmm. Um, so it's not like I'm just taking a big random breath. I'm taking a breath and sometimes I, I, I hold it and then I keep breathing until I get that full feeling of oxygen in my lungs. And um, it just, I think it's just uh, something that it's not really a ritual, but it's something that I'm familiar with. And it's like, oh yeah, okay, I'll take this extra oxygen. Because I think it obviously helps to have oxygen in your body and extra oxygen for your muscles to work. And I do think breathing in general, as you climb is very important. 
and, and diaphragm breathing and really starting from your belly and the diaphragm and then your, your chest. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of information out there about breathing and like Wim Hof and all this kind of stuff. It's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's, uh, I feel like I personally have like some untapped potential there with breathing and I've gotten better, but yeah, it's just, I've just started to learn about how powerful the breath is and it's, it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you're resting and shaking out mm. and, uh, I, I do believe in not doing like the shallow breathing, but like really slower, deeper breaths. I mean, sometimes you can't really help it if you're really pumped and you're going to be breathing fast. But I try to really focus on the diaphragm. And, and you don't, oh, it's like the technique thing. You're not always thinking about that. But at times when it's important, you just think about it and it helps you relax and get the oxygen that you need. Do you have a breathing strategy for the opposite, for like a crux move? Well, do you scream or do you? Yeah. I do think that screaming helps. That's one of the things in my video. I wanted to add this comment because I, I show this one move and I go huh! as I'm doing it, and it's like the karate chop. And I've read somewhere that it gives you some percentage, like ten percent more power if you use that. Huh! You know, and it's it's when you're doing a dynamic move that you do that. But if you're reaching on a delicate face, reaching, 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 it's breathing in because mm. it, it fills your lungs with air and it helps elevate your body. So breathing in when reaching on a slow move and huh, that helps. And, and there's a reason that Chris Sharma and Adam Ondra and a bunch of people, I mean, most of us do that. And it is a little bit embarrassing to make those noises to some, but it does help. Yeah. Yeah, you gotta you gotta just try it. Let that go, I think, you know? Like no one else really cares. No, no. And if they do, then that's their problem. Well, I don't like yelling um when you fall off type of thing and just right, like right, cussing right. and throwing mm-hmm. things. And I just feel like, yeah, you can be disappointed, but I think it's a little immature to be like that. Better to just say, okay, yeah, you might, ah, you know, like darn kind of thing but mm-hmm. you know yeah disappointment but it's it's not the end of the world either and, right and it, you also have to respect the people at the cliff that they don't want to hear you screaming it's not a very fun thing to be around mm-hmm. but yeah i mean going back to that like karate noise or screaming out of just sheer effort it feels like i definitely feel self-conscious about that sometimes especially early on when i hadn't tried that much but what i always find is like, I'm always, I always admire people that do that. You know, mm-hmm. I see, I see that level of dedication and commitment and try hard. And I just think it's so cool, you know? So if you're someone listening to this who feels self-conscious, just flip it around and think about it that way. Yeah. It's, I think it's, it's helpful. efficiency. Yeah. Okay. I want to talk about the process of freeing the nose. And the reason I'm really curious about that is because now we have something of a roadmap for how to do that. You know, like I've had a lot of conversations with people who have freed the, not the nose, but um, the free rider or Golden Gate or Corazon or these other free routes on El Cap. And some of them go ground up, some of them wrap in and work the cruxes and things like that. But there's a way to do it now, right? Mm -hmm. But you didn't have that. Well, I looked at it like it was a sport climb that instead of being, you know, 100 feet, it was 3,000 feet. Right. (laughs) But 
yeah, there is a different process. You can't just run to the top of El Cap as easily as you could get to the top of whatever 100-foot route. Um, but my approach was old school, start from the ground and see where you get. So we started ground up. Actually, the, the very first time I went on the nose, I was with Tommy Herbert Jr. And he wanted to go to medical school. And I didn't realize that he was just going with me for this one day and he was taken off for two weeks. And I'm like, wait, I live in Europe. I, I'm not going to wait two weeks to keep going on this process. So we went up, got to uh, the first traverse past a sickle ledge. So it's like six pitches or something, seven, I don't know. I think it's like four pitches up to sickle and then uh, another pitch to get to the traverse. But anyway, we figured out the traverse and that was one of the sections that hadn't been free climbed. And he's like, okay, great, you did it. Okay, so let's let's meet again in two weeks. And, and that didn't happen. So I ended up, actually my original plan was to meet up with Scott Franklin and Scotty got burned out and I won't go into the reasons why, because it's not my story to tell, but he was a little disappointed and it was getting hot. So he left. And so I had to find somebody else to climb with. And so Tommy Herbert's name came up and um, there were a couple people that were interested, but in the end, Tommy was the only one to start the project. And then I went to a Reno trade show um, back in the day, they had it there. and. I saw, um, wait, did I see him at the trade show? Yes, I did. I saw um, Simon Naden at the trade show and I asked him if he wanted to, well, actually it wasn't at the trade show. He was at Cave Rock, which is now closed. So I saw him at a climbing area and he said, sure, I'll try to the nose with you. He'd never done a big wall, but he's a really, really good climber. Were you trying to team free it initially with someone else or find someone to support you as you tried to free it? No, I was trying to team, you know, do it as a team. Yeah. You know. Okay. Yeah, most people who were interested wanted to do it themselves too. Got you it. know, they were yeah, curious like I was. So Simon agreed to do it. We asked for gear because his his whole tent, sleeping bag and everything got stolen, passports. He's living in England. Um so we gathered up some gear and went to Yosemite and, and started on our journey. And that was ground up. So we got all the way up to Camp 6, all free, on our ground up attempt. And where is Camp 6? That's after 20, the Great Roof? 2,500 feet off the ground, yeah. Wow. So I did the Great Roof on the, from the ground up. You know, like, <laughs> I mean, obviously I worked the pitch right. on that day. Yeah. That's pretty much all we did was from Camp 4 till, uh, yeah, we got to camp five, but it's not that much climbing. Uh, so yeah, that was pretty exciting to be able to do the great roof. And I thought we had it in the bag, you know, like, oh, I got the great roof, it's done. But I didn't have any idea what the changing corners was gonna be like. And then after that, then I reached out to Brooke Sandal because he had started trying to free climb the nose and he figured out the last pitch um, the glowering spot, but he'd never figured out the great roof. I don't think he even worked on it when I called him. And he said, well, I know you've already freed the great roof. So let's, yeah, this, this is going to go. So let's, let's try. So our approach was hike from Crane Flats. It's like nine miles. It feels forever. 
with all of our gear and I think water too. We didn't know about the spring. There is a spring up there that you should know about if you're <laughs> doing anything like this. Um, it's actually on the other side. It's, a, it's the trail that comes up the Falls Trail. As you're walking across this one spot, you'll see the water and there's a spring. Mm. And so you can fill up your water bottles and that's really, really helpful um, because sure. it's a long way to get to water otherwise. Yeah. So we hiked all of our stuff in, some static lines, and the plan was to wrap down and try the Great Roof. Or well, not the Great Roof, sorry, the, the Changing Corners. Mm -hmm. And and to review some of the other stuff, the glowering spots a little tricky. And the last pitch, um, when we first were on it with Simon, we didn't even know where it went. We were like, where does it, where does it go? There's a bolt ladder and actually you go to the right and mm. it, there's this nice little corner with holds. And, and then there's this amazing dike that comes right across where the bolt ladder goes up and you can get heel hooks and you can totally rest on this dike. And then there's like an overhanging roof and that's kind of where the business is. And you have to dive to this little tiny finger, two fingertip hold and stand up with nothing to grab because it's just like blank above that and just delicately friction over. And then there's one more little bulge and, and then you're done. Wow. <laughs> so that's amazing. So um, were people doing that? Were people wrapping in from the top? I mean, no one was free climbing on El Cap. So was that controversial at the time or was it just? Who was paying attention? Okay. Yeah. I don't think people really saw us because we're far away and it wasn't like, well, actually there were a few people that would hang out in the meadow with their telescopes. Um, I mean, the, did that feel totally novel and like, are we really going to do this? Is this really going to work? You know, or was it just like, oh, obviously we need to work on that pitch. Let's hike up to the top and wrap in. Yeah. It's always a sensitive topic though. When you're wrapping in, if there's people going up, you have to be respectful of them. Right. You don't want to ruin their experience, nor did I want to leave the ropes up for very long. But back in the day, there weren't that many parties up there. It wasn't as intrusive as it would be today. So Connor, um, what's his last name? Herson. Um, Herson, yeah. Mm -hmm. Connor Herson, yeah. He, he would not leave any fixed ropes. He would either hike up and wrap down all the way with his one or two ropes and climb out. Mm. Or he would start from the beginning and, and then wrap down when he was done. He, he did it in sections, but he never left any fixed ropes, mm. which is, it's kind of nice. It's a good approach. So there's a lot of nuance in, in whether you do this or that approach. And it's really, I think it's a combination of how popular is the route? How intrusive is it to put your rope there? How long are you going to leave the rope there? There's a lot of questions nowadays about that style and it doesn't really matter if you're on unknown routes on El Cap because there's really not that much traffic. Mm -hmm. But nowadays on Freerider, I think there's probably as much or more traffic on that route. As the nose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a more approachable level. And, you know, it's the one that Alex soloed. So people are really mm. curious what that feels like. And yeah, it's <laughs> that boulder problem move looked just completely insane. If he was <laughs> off, you know, if he rotated one more inch, he would have 
died. Yeah. You know? And so I could tell that, you know, he was super tight, like ugh, he got that hold. And, and I was talking to somebody in the Valley who spent like a month on the route. And they said for that move, when they kicked their foot, they had to wiggle their foot out a little mm. bit. So when they kick it, it's easier to stick in this one spot, but if you don't put your foot out a little bit, you're gonna rotate and do mm. like a barn door. Yeah. And they watched the movie and they saw where he put his foot and he didn't move it out. He just stuck it there. Mm. And, you know, he didn't fall off, but I think his body tension must've been just like crazy. Like, this is my life. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> um, Oh my gosh, my palms are sweating again. I want to ask you about changing corners though, because now that's widely considered 514, mm -hmm. at least 14A, maybe harder. What was the process like of freeing that pitch? I mean, did it seem impossible at first? Did it come together quickly for you? Like what what was that like? Well, when I I I didn't make it the first time with Simon, I went away from the valley to a, my mother's house in Idaho for a little family reunion chill time. And I, at, when we left, you know, Simon went back to England and he's like, yeah, okay. We, we did all but 20 feet. That was a good effort, but I'm going home. And so. I, so on the, sorry to interrupt on that first no. attempt, did you end up just like aid through aiding through the changing corners and mm -hmm. then just completing it? Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. We didn't bring Jumars or anything. It's you just pull on some gear or whatever, get past it. Mm -hmm. um, so when we failed, I wasn't thinking that I was gonna come back necessarily. But then I decided, well, if it's a corner, there must be a way of creating opposition. And that's my problem solving, you know, the physics of how can we create the opposition against this corner? It's, yes, it's a little bit sloping in the wrong angle, but there are these little openings and, you know, I just figured it could be possible. So that's when I called Brooke. Brooke was psyched, uh, he has a really, flexible job with Metolius and they understand that he needs to get out and climb. So he's like, okay, I'm leaving for two weeks. See you later. And, you know, he got some great pictures for their marketing because that's one of the things he does, design and marketing. So we went out and knew that the best approach would be to go in from the top because the changing corners is not that far from the top. It's like within the last 400 feet of the route. So we spent three days only three days working on the route. We camped up there with, you know, just that amount of food and water and wrapped down in. And, and I figured out all these moves, just piecing it together. The Houdini came from Brooke because he's got really colorful language. And he thought, that looks like something that Houdini would do, you know, some kind of contortionist thing. So uh, I figured out all the moves, but I didn't link it. I just figured out all the moves. And I said, I think this will go. I, I figured it all out. And it's really hard to remember, like going back many years later in 2018 and 2019, looking at the rock, it's, first of all, it seems kind of slippery because there's, you know, it's granite and it's had so many people go through, you know, aiding and rubbing their bodies on it. But there's really not a lot of distinction. So it's not like you can remember, yeah, I get that one edge and mm. I wrap my finger around it. It's like, well, I put my foot up and then I backstep and it's like, it's hard to remember all the intricacies of which foot goes exactly where and in what order. So somehow I felt confident enough that I could probably put it together in the shade or 
early in the morning or afternoon. I mean, and that, it did work. It did. <laughs> I mean, that is amazing though, because it's the Crocs pitch and it's 2,500 feet off the ground and you've free climbed everything to get there. Like I, I think most people nowadays, if they're trying to free the nose and not, uh, obviously not many people have done it, but like they wire that pitch, you know, they want to make sure it feels within their ability because they know they're going to be exhausted and they're going to feel the pressure and all this mm -hmm. stuff. So that's just amazing. Did all the moves, it'll go and just go for it. Yeah, I had no, nothing to compare it to. Mm. So yeah, we, we did take four days to, I think we, we fixed some, our gear up at the base of the stove legs so we wouldn't have to drag all of our haul bags all the way up the first part because it's kind of low angle mm. in the very beginning and and just a lot of traversing. Yeah. So we just had a long rope and we climbed all the way to the 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 base of the stove legs and hauled our stuff and okay, then we'll start from there. How much later was this after the wrapping in from the top? Not that many days. Like we took a couple rest days. Okay. Yeah. He had to get back to work. <laughs> I had to get back to France. So how did it go? So it went really well. And I saw Brooke recently for the documentary film. We went out and chatted with him. And it was interesting, some of the things that he said, looking back on the experience, he didn't think that it was that hard, but he didn't do those sections. He did not do the great roof or the changing corners. And he came up with this topo and he put grades on that he thought it was. And I never actually did. I thought the, cha the changing corners was at least 13D mm. or about 13D. And the great roof, probably 13C, something like that. Okay. Um, I don't know what it's rated now. I think 13C might be consensus for the great roof pitch. And 14A is probably fair. I don't know about B. It's so short. I mean, it's hard for sure. But it's the crux section is only 20 feet long, mm. maybe 20 plus a little bit. And then the rest of the pitch before and after is pretty straightforward. Okay. So what was the other that, question? Um, I mean, that that's actually really interesting and encouraging to hear. I don't know if encouraging is the right word, but that's interesting to hear because I've always just heard that, you know, you freed the nose and rated it 13B. And I was just like, that is so badass. Like she, didn't even, <laughs> she crushed it so, so much that she didn't even realize how incredibly hard it was and cutting edge it was. But yeah, well. Yeah, that yeah. clarifies that. That was Brooke's idea. And and he's like, yeah, it's just another rock climb. You know, he, he, he doesn't see the specialness of that climb. But mm. then later in the conversation, he got kind of teary-eyed and it was really sweet to see because he loves his, his grandmother, his mother, and he's got two daughters. And he goes... I think the most significant thing was she, and he couldn't even articulate, he just pointed to me, she showed that this was possible. So I think what he felt about that climb and the reason that it got so much attention had to do with the fact that it was a woman that was breaking this barrier that um, you know most people thought it would be a man to do that. Mm. How, yeah, I love that. Um. How did he do on it? Like at one point, did it switch where he realized he wasn't going to do it and went into support mode? To well, he also talked about that. Actually, he um, he wanted to do it free, but he he said to me, and I do remember him saying this: I would need a lot more time to do this, and this is the send. So why don't 
you know, let's just do it. And then I don't think that it meant as much to him to do every single move. He he just wanted to be a part of this process of unlocking the the mm. problem and doing the first reascent, being a part of that. And he felt, I felt bad because people would say to him like, oh, you're the guy that belayed Lynn. And, and it was really like him that started the, the new inspiration of trying to free climb the nose. And I kind of called him because I knew that. And, um, and he climbed everything, but like just a couple feet, you know, well, <laughs> underneath the great roof, there's a section you can just, you know, aid climb past it, but the whole beginning of it, he could do no problem. That's like 511. Um, so it's just the business underneath the roof and then the changing corners. Those are the only two pitches he didn't free. So he did 99% of it, but he didn't get the checkoff right. for completely free. Yeah. He's a really good climber. Of actually. course. Yeah. Yeah. And that's awesome. I mean, credit to him for being a part of the discovery of wrapping in from the top and let's figure this thing out and solve this puzzle. Mm -hmm. What made you want to go back and do it in a day? Actually, that's another one of these sort of happenstance situations where I was living in France and I'd met this filmmaker, Jean Afanasiev, who is an alpinist. And um, I think he was probably the youngest French person on the um, expedition to Everest at one point. So he was like this young up and coming alpinist that turned into a filmmaker. And he wanted to do a film with me. And I, I thought, well we didn't really get very many photographs or anything on the nose. So maybe we should go and actually do a pretty good job filming it and getting photos and, and do a real story, talk about this historic route. And, you know, there's a story here. So that's where that idea was born. But I, in thinking about it, I thought, well, it'd be kind of boring just to go back and pose around on this route there needs to be a more live element. Like mm. there needs to be something going on. So I thought, well, why don't I try doing it today? It's just like doing, you know, the, the 100 foot sport route, but we're going to talk about a 3000 foot sport route <laughs> and do it all in one day, which is obviously a lot more difficult because the difficulty is at the top. You know, after climbing 2000 feet, you get to the great roof and then another couple hundred feet up you're to the crux. And so it's a lot harder to perform at that level when you're tired. Sure. I mean, I interviewed Emily Harrington and Jordan Cannon about trying to do, you know, their, the things that they've done in a day. And I mean, for Emily, like doing Golden Gate in a day after having already freed it in multiple days, it was like a multi-year project just to come back and do it. And she had to train specifically for it and, you know, multiple failed attempts in there. And were you just able to do it or did you have to, did you try it and then have to reassess and train for it specifically? Oh, I trained for it. I, um, I made the agreement to go that following uh, September or maybe go a little bit earlier, but basically film in September. And I think I started training in March. Um, okay. But training meaning I wanted to have a high level of aerobic fitness, which is not something that most climbers think about a whole lot. I mean, people jog a little bit, but like I was running and like far and fast and every day, pretty much, not every day, but 
I would have some rest days. But I, what I wanted to do was load my body with a lot of demands. So the running was part of it. Then I would go climbing all day with whoever, you know, friends. And then that wasn't enough. I had to come back. And I finally, funny enough, after competing and retiring from competitions, I finally had a wall at my house. <laughs> but it was just for, for the fun of it. And just, I like being able to pad around on a wall. So this was in France. This was in my, um, I had a stone house and this was in a vaulted ceiling room. It was kind of like where you'd probably have a wine cellar. <laughs> and so it was a cool dome like room. And I just put, you know, basically like a circle of um, panels. So you could climb all the way around. Oh, cool. And so you'd climb up and down and around. And I would just stay on the wall for like 10 minutes, figuring that was about the length of a pitch. Hmm. And so I would just keep moving, keep moving, resting, just trying to tire myself out. And it wasn't so much about quality at that point because I'd already climbed and, and the climbing, the whole mindset there was to um, try to not second guess myself in terms of like, um, if I put my foot somewhere, I might adjust it a little bit, but I'm not gonna you know, do that whole, mm. like just trust you know, what, where your body wants to go. And, you know, if you're familiar with the route, you kind of know where the holds are too. So it's easier to do that. But the more important aspect was trying not to use any more energy than required. That's really interesting. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. So keeping in that flow and really just trying to be as efficient as possible. So I had the energy when I got to where I needed it, you mm. know, at the changing corners pitch. And the great roof, that's also hard pitch. Right. And um, on that, that particular day, um, on the one day ascent, I actually red pointed it. Like, no, well, yes. I didn't pre-place the gear. A lot of people will, they'll work their moves. They didn't send it maybe on their first try. You come back to the belay and you leave the gear in. Mm. So when I was there on the one day ascent, I wanted to do everything efficiently. And if you can do it your first try, that's great. So I did, I, I put the gear in and free climbed it at, you know, without having to lower back down and put the gear in and all that. Was it a no fall day? No, I did fall. My, my goal really was to not fall, mm -hmm. you know, cause that would be the perfect ascent. but you know, it's, it's just a goal. And, and then in the end, it's like, okay, so I did fall a few times on the changing corners. I slipped and it was hard. It was hard to start again after taking a break for like five hours or something because I climbed through the night. So it was a full moon, which I thought was kind of a nice symbolic uh, meaning because the full moon gives women particular power and, you know, the tides and all of that. I just figured it was extra energy and obviously you can see better at night with a full moon. Um, so I climbed all night and then got to the great roof in the cool hours of the morning, which was good. And then I got, you know, a couple hours later, I was at the base of the changing corners at the camp six and it was too hot. Mm. I just had to wait. So I think I got there one in the afternoon or something, I don't know. So I just laid there on the ledge for five hours and then, it's really hard if you've been climbing all night, you've done a lot of activity, your body wants to shut down again. Right, like go into recovery mode. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So then it was like, uh, you know, 
had to wake my body up mm-hmm. and, and my mind too, actually. But, um, oh, I, I was going to say something before when we were talking about Brooke. He said, he reminded me of sleeping on Camp 5 and, you know, that was the day that we were going to send the route and the, the changing corners was obviously the next thing to do. And I woke up and I told him that I dreamed that I did it. And so he knew that this was a good omen. And so <laughs> I thought that was cute that he remembered that. Oh, that's great. I love that. <laughs> Dreams are powerful. Mm. Mm-hmm. So where was I now in this story? Um, yeah, so I fell a few times and then um, I, well, it was five or so in the afternoon when I finally started climbing again and and I didn't get to the top until like nine at night or something. So again, I was in the dark and uh, I was pretty tired on that, those last <laughs> overhanging bulges. Yeah. Like, I wasn't sure that if I had to lower down and try it again, that I would even have the energy. I was that worked. Wow. I'd never climbed that many pitches in a day. <laughs> and it's actually pretty strenuous. Wow. Like the whole lower section it's actually climbing. pretty strenuous. Well, I <laughs> of mean, course it, of course it is. When you see grades, like if you were to go to France and climb in the Verdun and and have the same grades of five eleven, five mm, whatever, right? Um, I think I could do those routes easier than I could a Yosemite five eleven, right? Because crack climbing is by nature, it's just more physical, and you've got gear that you're carrying, and it's just it's more difficult to do. That makes sense. Yeah. And I was also surprised at how hard the Lynn Hill Traverse was. And ironically, it's kind of reachy. <laughs> the Lynn Hill Traverse? It's called, well, it's, that's what people are calling it. Um, so there was this section before you get to the, um, the Gray Bands, it's called, and then Camp 4. So pretty high up, just below the Great Roof. There was this pitch where you, if you were climbing it like most people do, you climb up to this anchor point and then you rappel down because it's kind of loose rock mm. and and you just do sort of a pendulum. And so I looked at that and I'm like, I don't want to just climb up and then climb back down. That seems silly to, you know, to free climb it. You have to climb every move free. So I thought, well, instead of going up into that loose rock, why don't we just traverse here? Mm. And so we added a pitch. Okay. And so there are a few bolts. Gotcha. But there's, you know, some kind of big moves. It's harder than I remembered it. <laughs> I think I thought it was 5.11 back in the day, but it's really more like 12A or hard 11, I don't know. I think if you're taller, it's you can reach this one spot easier. But um, anyway, that was <laughs> a funny thing to, it's called the Lynn Hill Traverse and it's reachy. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually a really good segue. Are, do you wanna dive into some listener questions? Sure. How are you feeling? Good. Yeah. Okay, great. This is re- I'm having so much fun, so I'm, I'm really good. happy that you're good to keep going for a little bit. This is actually a question from my friend Leela. And Leela, she's a great friend of mine. She's super strong and she's short. I, I can't remember exactly how tall she is. 5'4", um, maybe, 5'2", somewhere in that range. Probably not even 5'2". Okay, so she wanted to know, she just wrote, ask Lynn about her ape index. Well, since I've shrunk a little tiny bit, I used to be five, one and three quarters. I count every quarter inch. <laughs> now I think I'm closer to five, one. I might be a smidge over five, one. Um, and I always considered myself 
the, you know, the Vitruvian woman, um, which means like, you know, the Vitruvian man is um, your arms should be, uh, your your arm span should be, or your ape index should be the same as your height, mm-hmm. right? And I, I think I must've had a little bit of plus because now I'm perfectly, you know, the same. Oh, okay. If you look at my ape index, it's the same as my height. Okay. So I'm a zero. I don't have any plus, but I don't have a minus, <laughs> at least that. Gotcha. Just over 5'1". It it does help to have longer arms, I think. Even if the mechanical advantage of locking off might be more difficult Mm -hmm. for the longer lever arms, I do think that it helps to reach further. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask about that because Leela didn't ask this question, but I know she's thinking it. And um, I mean, like I said, she's a really accomplished and strong climber, but she, I think that's the one thing in her climbing that she comes up against and struggles with the most is the frustration that comes with a reachy move, you know, and feeling like, damn it, I, I'm just getting shut down by this thing, you know, it's unfair or whatever. And I've also, it's really cool to her credit. I've seen her go through this process a number of times where she's like, you know what, I can find a way. And then she does, but I mm-hmm. think that's still hard for her. Do you have any advice for shorter climbers out there as far as mindset, as far as tactics, like whatever comes to mind? You actually, well, you mentioned the, the undercling thing, which I yeah, love. Yeah, the undercling so. thing is definitely a good one. Or a vertical hold. At least you have a neutral wrist position. You can okay. still reach further. From a side pull. From a side pull than you could a vertical hold. Um, but the main thing is you have to bring your feet up higher, generally. Um, definitely have to lock off further sometimes or use bump. You have to bump your hand from something that, most people would not even recognize as a hold. And, and it doesn't have to be an actual hold. It can be just something that helps you stabilize as you're going again. So uh, sometimes it, it helps you bring your chest in close to the wall, depending on what kind of intermediate it is. But bumping helps a lot um, or just jumping. I'm not that great at jumping, actually. It's not my strong suit, but there are times when that's the only way. And I remember doing something in the Red River Gorge, no, New River Gorge, and it was a reaching move and I spent forever on it. And I ended up onsighting it, but I ended up kind of like doing like a little circle around, you know, instead of going straight up, mm. I, I had to do some hard moves just a little bit to the right and then I could get something else. And so there, sometimes you have to just broaden your your vision and see mm. what might be you know, an option to the side and not just get blinded by, well, everybody's going this way. So sometimes it's just a little bit more circuitous or- Circuitous, you just, nice word. Yeah, thank <laughs> you. Or you just find an intermediate that works for you. Mm. Awesome. Thank you for that. Yeah. Okay. I want <laughs> I want to show you something and get your thoughts on it and see if you remember this. Cause this is this is something that my friend Lizzie Van Patten sent in to me. Lizzie's actually, she was my very first podcast guest on this show. She's a good friend. She's a total badass. And she's so excited to listen to this episode. I don't think she listens to my podcast very often, but she's very excited <laughs> to listen to you. And she writes, have you seen this? Talking to me, she writes, have you seen this? When I saw that you were interviewing Lynn, I got excited and found this in my research, the first all women climbing film. Here, I'm trying to load it here. The very first. I had it already, but now it's it's frozen. 
you know, this is going to sound really weird, but your ears look like my family ears, something, you know, like this, like my brothers, I have <laughs> yeah. little brothers that have like the similar shape of your ears. So it's just, I've been looking at your ears like, wow, that looks like my brother, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. She Here found it online. Mm -hmm. It's on Vimeo. It's a film by Robert Carmichael. Oh, I'm giving you I know clues. What it is. Yeah, first descent. Yep. Yep. First descent. But I really I'm okay, here we go. He lives down the street. Oh, really? Yeah. He lives on eleventh. He used to live in LA. That's when I met him. I lived in LA too. Okay. So now we both live here. And I babysat for him during the filming of this. You know, we were there for a few days. Oh yeah. Now there's a new breed of athlete attempting to not only climb this wall, but to do so free of any mechanical aid. A rope is used for protection, but every upward inch is gained using hands and feet only. <laughs> That's a funny story. So, um, <laughs> first of all, it was a little bit of a ficumentary. Um, I was uh, say that word again. Uh, I call it ficumentary, like a fake documentary. Fiction and documentary together. I love that. Okay, yeah. great. And so it's fiction because, you know, this was supposed to be a motivational story that we go up, we fail, and then we come, we train, and then we go back and do it. Well, we go up there to film and Jeff Lowe is the sound guy and Bob Carmichael's there with the camera. And he's like, okay, so now you got to fall. And I'm like, wait, I haven't gotten a chance to onsite this. <laughs> and so I didn't get to onsite the Naked Edge. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, at least that pitch. <laughs> anyway, that was something, at, you know, personally that I was uh, bummed about. But um, he also would show like here, you know, right on the base of, you know, the trail there, there's like a face. And he's like, well, just pretend that you're, you're going up to this hold and then just pull your hand away. And so he would get cutaways like that, you know, just like random places. Um, so he, yeah. And then he made me wear these ridiculous clothes that I would never wear. Um, and then they also, they didn't like my voice for some reason or my partner's voice. So they, he hired these women to say things, those weren't our voices. No way. Yeah. In the whole film? <laughs> at least in, in the climbing, at least in one section. I think it was okay. when we were on the wall. Okay. He wanted some dialogue. And so he kind of just, you know, fudged it a yeah. little bit. But the funny thing was... Um, I, I did babysit for him during that week because he and his wife wanted to go out to dinner and uh, he had two kids. And one of them is this really famous musician, Jesse Carmichael. He He's on the Maroon 5. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's yeah. like guitar player, singer. Okay. So I babysat a famous <laughs> singer. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay, I'm going to fill in some context. So for people listening, I just showed Lynn a clip of... First Ascent, which is a film made by, made by Bob Carmichael, 1981. And it's a film of Lynn Hill and Beth Bennett trying to climb and climbing the Naked Edge. And it's funny. I mean, it's supposed to be, and I'm sure it was this very inspiring story, first all-female climbing film, but it hasn't aged well, you know? Like right now, it looks kind of like Cliffhanger or something like that. It's, it's entertaining, but it's almost like given how much of a badass you are, it's almost kind of patronizing in a way, you know, I was watching it and 
you're shrugging right now. Um, <laughs> but there was parts of it that were so awesome. I, I mean, it was just so classic. There's like a four minute training montage. It's got to oh, yeah. be the first like climbing training montage ever filmed. But you were like bench pressing for climbing in like 1981. Well, remember when John said you could break the world record in the bench press? Yeah. It was around that time period. So I, I still had a lot of strength for bench pressing. And I, what you see me lifting there is like um, uh, the bar is 45 and then there were 45 the, the at least. Yeah. So yeah. it's like a hundred and- It was at least 135. Yeah. 135. Yeah. yeah. It was a lot. <laughs> yeah. And then I had some smaller weights. I just remember thinking, wow, that's a lot of weight. I could not do that. How close were you to, to the world record in the I don't know, press? because I think what happened was um, <laughs> the women started taking <laughs> testosterone or whatever oh. drugs and I, there <laughs> right. was no way I was going to compete with that. Right. Or, or do that, you know. Sure. Um, but I, I have to ask about this. I mean, so the training montage- bench pressing, you're like road biking and trail running. And then you guys are like running up the stairs at a stadium and you know, you're sitting there reading a book with a hand gripper gripper. In that your was head. post. <laughs> I, I don't use hand grippers, but anyway. So, yeah. so what of that were you doing in the early eighties for climbing? Were you training that way? No, I was running actually running on jetties was something I would do in Southern California. I liked hopping from rock to rock. I only, oh. I only slipped once and, and that's kind of bad if, if you slip and I kind of banged my shin. Um, but you know, you have to really pay attention to how you're jumping and landing on each rock because you're just jumping from one to another. And I, I thought it was fun, talus running or hmm. jetty running is what it was actually. But the best thing about that sequence is this boulder traverse I think it's near the monkey traverse or something. I didn't know where we were going because Bob knew the area better than I did. So he's like, oh, let's just do some bouldering. And he goes, why don't you go across here? And so I, I thought I'd do a little fun twist and I, I did a 360. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> and and I think it's funny because- in, It's like Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible. Exactly. <laughs> he stole my move. Tom Cruise stole my move. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> That is so funny. Well, I will I'll definitely share the film in the show notes for people listening. You should definitely all go and watch it. I have um Derpy. No, no barking. <laughs> okay. Have I have some questions from Lizzie. These are unrelated to this film. She just thought that would be fun to share. Okay. She read your book and she writes, What does Lynn feel is or was different about her? Was it nature or nurture that sets Lynn apart? She's been able to, to achieve so many things that many women can't. Why is that? And then she writes, I read her book and it was super interesting to read about her role in her family. And I'm very curious how that affected her. Do you know what she means by that? Because yeah. like I said, I haven't read your book. So I'm, I'm curious um, what she's getting at there. Well, I come from a large family. I'm- You had like six, six siblings? I'm one of seven. You're one of seven, yeah. I'm the fifth born. So I have two older brothers, two older sisters and two younger brothers. Okay. And I think growing up in a large family definitely helped me become more independent and uh, figured things out myself. And if I had a question, I could always ask a sibling. And um, my mom asked me this uh, about a year ago. She goes, well, what makes you the way you are? Kind of, she was curious about- A year why, ago? Yeah, about a year ago. Okay. Just talking about, you know, my temperament and- and how, why are you that way? She didn't understand it. And I said, well, mom, I'm, I think I was born this way, the temperament. And the 
physique and whatever, you you can also, with your mind and determination, change your physique and, and optimize it. Um, but I think the temperament is actually the more important point here because I think ever since I was a kid, I enjoyed experimenting with my body in space and I, I, I liked novelty. I, I wasn't somebody who would do like everybody else because I think early on they called me a tomboy because of my interest in playing outside and wearing jeans and all of that. And I think that I embraced that because that was who I was. Uh, you know, if you want to call me a tomboy, yes, I do like to play outside. So that's who I am. So I'm going to be free to be who I am. And so I think that that um, being given a title that seemed like I was different than a normal little girl gave me the license to be whatever it is that I am. So I think that was empowering as a, a young girl. But where the temperament came from, I think it was probably natural and then encouraged through each of the decisions and experiences that I had in mm. that direction. So I found success in it. I found happiness and and it, it just kind of continued in that direction. Hmm. Did you ever play the mental game that so many of us play? Like, what if, what if I had done this or that or, or spent less time traveling and in the outdoors and done the more conventional thing? Did you ever think about that? Or did you always just love what you were doing? Oh, I, I often consider, you know, what would have happened if I did get my degree in physical therapy? I don't think I would have done what I did in climbing if I did that. I would have been comfortable, I'm sure, and able to, you know, go on vacations and, and climb, but it would have been, you know, with the schedule of whatever my physical therapy practice would require. Mm. So I think it would have been, I would have been a different person if I had gone the more normal route. And there are times when I think, wow, you know, I picked a, a really uncharted direction in my life. Mm. And there are no guarantees. I don't have 401k plan. I don't have, you know, all the stuff that most people who get a job with a big company, they, they're covered, you know, they don't have to worry about all this stuff. And it's never been that sure, you know, whether I was making the right decision, but here I am at 61 and I have a house in Boulder. Uh, I've worked hard. To, Beautiful house in Boulder. Yeah, thank you. Um, and it's worked out, you know, even if things don't work out from here, I could probably just sell my house and go live down in Waco, you know, <laughs> real cheap. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't think I'd want to live there in the summertime, but, um, you know, I could, I could live cheap. I could, you know, make it work. Mm -hmm. So it's sometimes strange for me to look back on my own life and say, wow, I chose this really strange career that didn't make any sense when I started doing it because there was no precedent for it. And then, you know, there might've been a few Europeans like Patrick Edlanger who were getting paid to climb and Catherine Destevel, but that was France, you know, that was Europe, you know, that's not the same game as what I was experiencing in this country. My, I was told we don't sponsor climbers, you know, sponsoring climbers would sounds like a terrible idea. And it's like, well, okay, well, what about marketing? You know, don't you think it's important to have a role model? And if so, why not support somebody that you believe in? So I think eventually the term ambassador made sponsorship sound a lot more attractive to companies mm. because if you're an ambassador, now that sounds 
a lot better than like a sponsored climber. We're paying them to wear this stuff. And it's not like that. You're just subsidizing somebody's ability to focus on climbing and, and push the boundaries and, and give something back. And obviously the, the companies are looking for the marketing exposure and the culture of climbing. The, the fellow climbers are interested in sharing or hearing your stories and seeing footage or photos or whatever. And that's, that's how the game works. Mm-hmm. I love it. <clears throat> um, Lizzie also was curious about that. As far as sponsorship goes, are you still sponsored? And if not, when did that fall off and why did that fall off? And um, she's curious how you make a living now. And, you know, I'm sitting in this beautiful house that you have and you showed me around earlier and we saw your Airbnb unit that you rent out and you make a living doing that. But do you still have sponsorships? I don't get paid by any company. Okay. Actually, I did get um, some money from a a non-climbing company, this uh, company called Ufos. Okay. and they make a recovery shoe. It's really, it's kind of like a memory foam type of thing, but it's it's very specific for the purpose of, you know, walking and absorbing a lot of the shock. So, you know, each time you plant your foot, there's a lot of force. And, you know, there's a lot of people with back problems and knee problems and different things. And and having a shoe that absorbs that force is a it's a pretty good thing to have. So they're really comfortable to walk in. It reminds me, I, I uh, was an engineer. I used to be in a cubicle and I had a standing desk and I had one of those like really cushy mats to stand on. And the, the shoe that you just showed me, it reminds me of like having that inside mm-hmm. a shoe. Yeah, it's yeah. really comfy. It's, it's really nice. It takes a little bit of getting used to. Some people are like, wow, that works out my calf in a different way. And mm. that's not something I noticed. I just, when I put them on, I was like, wow, this is really soft. And I call them the quiet shoes because you don't hear anything. Like when you plant your foot, it's just quiet. And so, yeah, they wanted to do an ad. And so we went out to Joshua Tree and I did an ad. So I got paid by them. But um, Petzl gives me gear. I haven't asked for any yet this year, but I will. Um, I I need some rope and maybe a new harness. Don't want to pull a Todd Skinner or anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. and, And the reason why is... You know, I think as you get older, um, I was actually even told that it's a little bit like, you know, you should expect to get less and less as you get older. And I I could see that, you know, that coming. And I didn't want to be like somebody with my hand out asking for money. Mm. You know, I just, that's not a comfortable thing. It's part of my character to be taking control of myself and responsibility and all of that. And, um, I had my son and I felt like I was, well, I was, I'm a single mom and there's no way I could be a professional climber and be a good mom. That just, to me, did not make any sense. So I eliminated that issue by saying, okay, I'm not going to take the money. I'm not going to do that. Um, I'm going to raise my kid. And, and so the Airbnb was a natural step because I have more space than I need and I want to stay home so I can be home. So Airbnb was a way of staying at home, working on this video project and and speaking engagements, which I do on occasion. So I get some money from that. Um, And, you know, like sponsorship is sort of not something I count on. So the UFOs thing was, you know, just like a you know, once in a blue moon, you get a, a, you know, some kind of nice check from a company like that. But uh, I think that 
the best way to look at it is that I do projects and, you know, uh, the technique video is one, the, the documentary film is another, I don't know if that's really going to be a money maker. I guess that depends on, you know, a lot of decisions, but that could make some money. You know, if you're going to create a story, it should make you money like the book. Um, the book that I wrote helped subsidize this house. Mm. So that's, you know, how well, that's I do awesome it. Like to hear. This project, that project, like what you're doing, you're doing a series of projects. It's all on the theme of a podcast, but you're, you're doing projects mm -hmm. and you're giving something back. And that to me seems like the right way to do it. Mm. And you do get sponsors, right? Because they're sponsoring your show mm -hmm. and they're getting something for it. So it's just a matter of how you package your value and whether it's a marketing thing or if it's a product or actually I started selling t-shirts with It Goes Boys and people love it. <laughs> and, you know, oh man, I love that. It was a, it's a little bit more work than I thought because you have to get all set up with the printing and, you know, buy all the materials for printing. And Oh, you, you and print them here? Well, I, I printed the t-shirts in town, yes, but I mean the printing of the logos and, and packaging and, you know, you have to get your systems all set and and then, you know, respond. And if you're traveling, it's a little bit less convenient. Mm. And so I'm kind of a one person show and uh, I don't really have an assistant because I can't really afford to hire somebody. So I pretty much do everything myself, <laughs> but it works. It's, it's easier to manage because mm -hmm. I just have to manage myself. <laughs> totally. No, I, I can relate to that. I've thought a number of times about what I might be able to outsource with this project because there's I've, I always have too many ideas, you know, more ideas than I have time for. And for example, I'd love to do some really fun mini series, you know, talking to the same guest a few times and doing a collection of short episodes on a theme or something like that. But um, I always bump up against the same thing. Like it's so nice actually to be a one person show. Mm -hmm. You know, I have Stevie helping me on Instagram, but otherwise all the editing, everything, it's me and part of me wants to hold on to that because there's so much freedom in that. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see what happens. <laughs> I think it's good. I, I think you can do a lot with just yourself and, and you've learned how to do all the skills that you need to do. So yeah. Adding new ideas on top of it could be a way of expanding. Like I was talking to a young climber and um, Brittany Goris actually. Oh yeah. I know Brittany. Yeah. She's, she's, we went to college together. She's a wow. friend of mine. Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, she called, we had a really long conversation and her question to me would be something like the questions that you're getting from your audience. Like, how do I go about becoming a professional climber? I mean, she is kind of already, I don't know how she makes a living, but she does writing, um, which probably doesn't pay a whole lot. Um, I know she does some graphic design work, like freelance, okay. or maybe she works for a company, but I know she does that too. Mm -hmm. That's a good thing to have on the side. But I think she really wants to live the dream of being a professional climber. And that means full-time sponsorship. Uh, they even give you money to go on trips. They set you up with whoever that's going to film and photograph. Sometimes the, the athletes do the writing um, or blogs. Um, there's a lot of ways to do it. So one of the ideas that I said was, well, you know, if you're traveling around in your van and you want to... Um, do something like a, a show. I've seen this one woman, I can't remember her name, but she has a TV, well, TV, I call it TV. It's an online show. Mm. And she's living in her van 
and she's climbing with people. She stopped at this gym um, in in London and climbed with um, uh, Lewis Parkinson. Oh yeah, and they it was really cute. He's he's so good at this dynamic style, and he was showing her the drills, and it was quite interesting that particular show. But the idea of her, um, as in Brittany, doing uh, let's say pick Leonidio as a, as a location that's in Greece, and you know show some of the best climbs. This is, these are the climbs that you should do. This is the place you should eat. Here's where you can stay. Kind of like a, a video travel log mm. with the beta, you know, here's how you can do it. And I think people would be interested because they, they may want to go on a trip to Greece and they want to check out where you can stay. And I mean, that's a useful idea for people mm -hmm. and it's entertainment. And I don't know, it's, it's just a different twist on the, the media that you're you're presenting and why yeah thank you for thank you for that yeah i mean the the theme that i'm hearing is just like using your skill set and using your unique persona and just being creative with that mm -hmm. and, and finding creative solutions to give people value and give companies value mm -hmm. so yeah. yeah okay we're going to jump around here this is a totally okay. unrelated question but i think it's a good one this is from nick Nick writes, climbing has obviously changed and evolved over the years, both stylistically and culturally, and it will continue to do so in the future. Are there any core cultural aspects of climbing that you hope to see maintained? Are there any that you would be happy to see disappear? Well, the first one, again, uh, talking with my friend Mari, we, we got on the theme of how it used to be in the culture um, you know, just the rapport between climbers and how that's changed. And I think that being a smaller community, it was more intimate. Like you would know who was at the crag that day, just, you know, because you've, there aren't that many people and you say, oh, there's so-and-so. And, you know, back in the early days, um, you could see the footprint of the shoe in the, in the <laughs> dirt and say, oh, so-and-so is here, you know, kind of thing. That's mm -hmm. sort of a joke, but... It was that small. And I think that the specialness of climbing gave us a bond that was unique and we were committed to style in a way that I think we we went to great extents, even overboard on this whole, you, you couldn't um, hang dog, which means practicing the moves. And that kind of set us back in, in terms of progress. If we were working out the moves on harder routes, we would have progressed a whole lot faster. But the purity of the approach and the style was important to us. And I still think it's a, a really admirable quality to, to approach the climb with the best style that you can come to it. And that means obviously the, the best would be on site. You know, you just walk up and you do it beautifully. Um, and you don't alter the rock. You don't go and preview and, you know, do all these things. You just, you know, have a beautiful, spontaneous climbing experience. And um, I think there was an ethic of respect towards your fellow climber that seems um, a little more, well, back then it seemed more important. Mm. Now it's like, there's so many people that it's like, you're just waiting in line to get on a route. And it's kind of, it just changes the feel when you lose that intimacy. Mm. And, and it's not, it doesn't always have to be this way, but you know, some, some people are so serious about their climbing 
they're not interested in having a conversation with anybody else. They're just people that are in their way. And so that, that kind of feels like some of that culture and appreciation for the people might be different. And I don't say that it is for sure. It just depends on where you are and what part of the country and what kind of local feel you have. So I think it can vary. But I'd say as you get a larger demographic of diverse people and lots of them, you lose a certain intimacy that mm. was there. Mm -hmm. And then something that could go away along those themes, like when we were... Uh, like in the mid 80s, there was a lot of discussion about repel place bolts and hangdogging. And there were people that were so serious about it that they were fighting each other over it and then wrecking roots and banging the, the bolts and smashing them and doing terrible things. That could go away. <laughs> totally. Yeah, <clears throat> mostly has, thankfully, but yeah. Well, I heard about this route in, in Spain that recently got vandalized. Mm. Um, or Bayou, it's a multi-pitch, really hard route, and somebody just got it in their mind to just destroy it because they didn't like the free climbers or something. I don't know. Oh, man. Mm -hmm. So even the rock, it wasn't just the bolts. It was also the rock that they mm. destroyed a little bit. So that that's kind of behavior, I think definitely does not belong anywhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Chalk Cartel. I discovered these guys a couple years ago now, and I've been using their chalk ever since. Here's the deal. Chalk matters. And if you're serious about climbing, you owe it to yourself to get the good stuff. Luckily, with Chalk Cartel, you can get the best stuff on the market without breaking the bank. Chalk Cartel sources the highest quality, high content magnesium carbonate you can buy. No fillers, no impurities, and no bogus proprietary claims. This stuff has been independently tested in a lab side-by-side -side other top brands, and it's exactly the same stuff or better. They also use eco-friendly packaging because they care about the environment. So if you need a fix, head over to chalkcartel.com and enter code NUGGET at checkout. You'll save 20% off your next order of pure, uncut, high-performance climbing chalk. That's Chalk Cartel. Use code NUGGET for 20% off excellent climbing chalk. And I will leave you with this friendly message from my three-year-old niece. Chalk Cartel. You're either for us or against you. And now back to the show. How much more energy do you have? We've got eight more questions, I think. Yeah, let's keep going. Keep Unless going. you want to walk around or something. I'm good to keep going. Okay, let's you keep feel going. Good? Yeah. Okay. This one is from Bradley. Bradley writes, absolutely psyched. I'd like to know what Lynn's passions look like today. Is she still crushing the climbing world or has she shifted her interests? And we've talked about that already in this conversation. Well, but. it's it's not that I'm crushing the climbing wall or world. Um, I think that I still like to go out and go rock climbing. And it doesn't really matter that it's not the top level. If If it's hard for me and I can do it, that's great. You know, I just like to be challenged and, and everybody has their level, no matter if it's, you know, the elite level or you're just a recreational climber, it's all kind of the same thing. You, you go out, you, you try to do something on site, maybe you fall, you, you got 
stumped by a move and you figure it out and then you link it. I mean, this is probably just describing most people's experiences on sport climbs. Um, if it's a trad climb, then there's the element of figuring out where the gear is and picking the right gear and racking it up in the right order. And there's a little bit more to it than that. But it's all the same kind of challenge, no matter if it's the highest grade or not. It's it's just relative to your particular abilities. And I still love doing it. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so you started in gymnastics and you were also a runner and you... You're just an athlete. Um, you have other interests as well. Is climbing still your main love though? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. In the wintertime, I do um, cross-country skate skiing. That's so good aerobically because you're using your arms and your legs. So mm. you, your lungs get a huge workout, your heart. It's just really, really good. And you feel so great afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. This is from Jessica. Jessica writes, I would love to hear Lynn talk about Mingus, a climb that she onsighted in 1994 in the Verdon. Yeah. You want to tell me about that? So when I was talking earlier about psyching up for the one day ascent on the nose, I was training in places like the Verdun, and Mingus was a route that Patrick Edlanger wanted to do. And he said, would you like to try it with me? And I said, sure. And... I, this is my hunch, he's no longer around to ask him, but I think he got a little bit cold feet and he did not want to be shown up by me. Because as it turns out, he bailed and I ended up climbing with another guy named Patrick. And, <laughs> and I was so psyched to, you know, optimize my, my mindset for the nose and, you know, this whole idea of flow and, you know, executing full on 100%, but you know, keeping loose and not over gripping and not second guessing and all that stuff. So it turns out I onsighted that route and it was like, it was going to be a first free ascent. I thought it was going to fall and have to work it out. But the crux involves some really small holds, which might've been actually better for me as mm. a small person. It's not often that you can say that the move or the that crux was easier for a small person, but when there's not much else to hang on to on a blank wall, you know, and depending on where the footholds are, you know, um, it might've been that it was an advantage. I don't know, but I was on that day and I was pretty psyched to do it. And Nina came back and did it like, I think in between 2018 and 2019, the two trips that we went to the nose, she went to the Verdun and she decided to try that route. She was pretty impressed by it. She's like, wow, that was a hard route. And, and it, it was just, for me, hearing that, it was interesting because I, I know I was in that mindset of really trying hard. And so I was definitely, I'd bumped my, my level up quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And I even onsighted something that was 13C in Spain on that trip. And I, you know, it was just like, wow, was that really 13C? And it was like, it was surprising to me because I didn't notice that I was stronger, but I was at mm. that particular time. So the Mingus was a really special memory for me because of just how that day went. And, and just, you know, I mean, Patrick not showing up was a little bit of a disappointment, but I heard somebody tell me um, actually on uh, like 
FaceTime messenger. He's this guy that I occasionally see in town. His name is Sasha. And he, he shared with me the story that um, he was talking to Patrick and, and Patrick said something about, like, I, I forget what the question was, but it was like, who's the best climber in the world? And, and he goes, Lynn Hill. And I was like, what, he said that? Really? Because like, I thought that Patrick was like one of the most beautiful people to watch. Like when I first started going over to France, you know, the whole idea of they blow their, <laughs> their chalk off their hands. But no, he really had this quiet feet. You know, he would just place his toe on and just so beautiful. And he was strong. He came to this country, um, let's see, was... I think in mid eighties or something. And he onsighted all these hard routes here. And he was definitely the best climber, I think at that time period mm. right then. So I don't know what, where he came up with that, but I think he, he must've seen something at some point and was impressed. And he was also intimidated. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, to, to paint a little bit more of a picture, because I read this question and read Mingus and, looked it up and, you know, I didn't know. I thought it was maybe a single pitch thing somewhere, but this is like a thousand foot tall, 12 pitch route in the Verdon mm -hmm. and it's 13B. And, you know, that praise from Nina is really high praise because that's like her specialty. You know, she loves doing that stuff um, and she's really good at it. Um, was that a first free ascent as well? Yeah, that was. <laughs> that's why I was so surprised. It's yeah. like, wow. <laughs> And so That's I know so it's hard. Cool. The reason I say it was maybe easier to be smaller, or at least have small fingers, is that I went there with Pietro Daltra, like, I don't know how many years after it was, it was, you know, 2000 and something. And he couldn't do the move because mm. he's got really thick fingers and he just, he didn't find a way to do the move. Wow. Which I was surprised about. Now, I think he probably could have if he insisted a little bit, but... He's just like, yeah, no, I, I don't, there's no holds. <laughs> I can't hang on to that. So maybe it's changed. I don't know. Um, no, I don't think that was the case because I, I did the route with him. So I, I did the move, mm. um, but he didn't do the move. So, I mean, there are occasions where maybe it's better to have small fingers. And actually the great roof is not necessarily the best example. And that was the funny thing about, you know, after I did the nose, people said, oh, well, Lynn could do it because she has small fingers. And it's like, well, but I'm also, I can't reach as far. And so that <laughs> I have these other set of, mm -hmm. you know, physical parameters that are not necessarily an advantage. And, you know, Tommy Caldwell, he's not talking about how he only has, you know, three and a half fingers on one hand, you know? I've never heard him talk about that. No. Yeah. Not a single time. No, and obviously it's more difficult if you don't have your index finger, right. most of it. <laughs> right. And he's just super strong and you find a way to adapt. Mm. So, yeah, I thought it was interesting that people wanted to attribute it to one thing, like small fingers. <laughs> I mean, people, people always want to do that. We always want to reduce things and make them simple, you know, and judge them. That's such a human tendency, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, Nina, this is a great segue talking about Nina. This is a question from Matt and Matt writes, I would like to hear Lynn talk about her time on El Cap with Nina. He's talking about uh, Nina Caprez. Mm -hmm. And for people listening, I did an episode with her, episode 101, if you want to check that out. 
Yeah, hear about her time with Nina after not being there for so long. Does she have another female partner in the wings to adventure with and mentor now that Nina is busier with other stuff? And what he's referring to there is that Nina just had a beautiful baby girl um, mm -hmm. and is no longer pursuing hard climber climbing, at least not right now. So, Well, she I, I don't know if I should say this on the podcast, but her baby also has some... Um, heart issues mm. and she's going to have to have open heart surgery oh, next month. Scary. Yeah, super scary. Yeah. Um she looks like a beautiful combination of her and her partner. Um she looks healthy, but she I think she took her to altitude or something. She was traveling around and I think it just got her really tired, you know, mm. plus the the blood is obviously an important part of your functioning. And I think she just got really tired and stopped eating. So they had to take her to the hospital. So, you know, after this operation, she's going to have to kind of stay in the Grenoble area for like the next few years. Mm. I mean, she can leave a little bit, but somebody's got to manage that. Yeah. Wow. We'll, we'll be thinking about you, Nina. Yeah. So I got to know Nina uh, really well by climbing with her on the nose. And also we climbed a little bit in France. Where else do we climb? We climbed um, on one of the rock trips, but being on a wall with somebody, you really get to know them intimately. You know, you're living with them and talking about everything from relationships to, you know, climbing obviously, goals, um, struggles. At the time when we were hanging out, she was, not really in a relationship. I think she had a couple, well, she did on the, the first year, she had a relationship with this guy that turned out to be not so good. Um, so we talked a lot about life issues and, and it brought us really close. And it was really cool that she, when I found out she got pregnant because part of our conversations were, you know, that balance between being a professional climber and then wanting like what most people want, like also stability and a family and not everybody wants kids, but she wasn't even sure actually when I first brought it up, didn't seem like she was too clear on that. It was, it was kind of like, yeah, it could happen, but you know, right now it's not happening at all. And I think that when I first met her, she was so focused on climbing and you know, it's it's borders on, um, I hate the word, but narcissism because mm. top level athletes are so focused on themselves, it might appear that way. Now, I wouldn't say that she is that. I'm just saying that when you dedicate your entire life to traveling around, eating the right things, training, all that stuff, it becomes obsessive. Right. Maybe that's like, the better word. It's like the dark side of obsession, maybe. Yeah. So it doesn't really allow for much balance in relationships. And through our relationship, and then after, you know, 2019, when she went back to Europe, she was in a pretty low place, I think. She was kind of sad that she didn't do the route, but then I think that gave her a lot to really think about. What does it mean? You know, it doesn't mean that her experience was negated. She did what she did and it was amazing. She literally came within an inch of making it. She just slipped at this one point mm. on her, you know, we were up there for a week solid on the wall. So we were getting tired and you get tired of eating freeze-dried food too. So we were just over it. And, and she was so close that it was clear that she could do it. 
And so there you have to really ask yourself what's important in life. Do I need this checkoff because I'm a professional climber and, and they want to, you know, promote that or how important is that? She shared her story and her story was good. And that's the, the point that, you know, her sponsors really want to utilize is her story. And, and it obviously is inspiring and it doesn't always have to have the perfect ending either. Mm. And so for her to come back and invest that kind of time again, I think was just overwhelming or just like too much. She wanted to move on to other projects. And part of that was going to Makatea, where she met Jeremy, who's now the father of her child. And I think that was another step in her personal evolution, just talking to her about that relationship and about who he is and how he supports her and what she learned in the process and, and what he's said to her. You know, I, I don't want to share too much of her story, but he seems like a great guy and very good person to be in the situation that they're in now with their baby. And I think she's grown up a lot. Mm. So, and, and we've become much better friends because at first it was kind of like, she just wanted to go and, and get on El Cap. And, you know, it was obviously a novelty to be with me on that. And we had met and, and we, we liked each other. We, you know, we're not the same age, obviously. I kind of felt like I could be her mother or something. And that's often the way it is now with any of the younger climbers. I could be their mother, you know, definitely that age. <laughs> but, um, you know, she she had things to offer to me too. You know, just, it was a, a good relationship for us both. And, and it was great to have a rope gun. She was just so full of energy. She would just like haul the bag, you know, like one hand practically, because we didn't bring that much stuff. But um, she's just so strong. She's like Swiss built, you know, so strong. <laughs> Swiss machine. Swiss machine, yeah. So I would say that our relationship is better than ever now. And I don't get to see her much. Um, I did speak to her yesterday about um, her child and, and what's going on, because I want to plan a trip to go visit her and, uh, and see the baby and hang out and meet, actually meet Jeremy. I've not met him. So yeah, it'll be nice. It's, um, it's a lifelong relationship mm. and, and a very, I'd say significant experience both years when we went. And, um, I was really happy the second year I decided I wanted to do the entrance move to the changing corners. Cause that's a really hard move. And I actually made something on my wall out there, like a little simulator. I saw, yeah. <laughs> I saw that. I put a bigger hold on since, you know, I, I had a bad hold because it really isn't much of a hold. It's yeah. more just like pressing your foot against the wall. Um, but it did seem to help because um, actually after having a baby, um, I had a C-section and I think it changes your abs. Something happened um, and I get like these cramps in my psoas. So mm. um I needed to focus a little bit on on getting that ab strength back again to do that. So I was pretty psyched to be able to do that entrance move and uh, and focus a little bit more in climbing. But the the first year when I went back, um, I was involved in this project and the, you're the house. You're mentioning the house, yeah. yes. And I had to move a lot of flagstone, so I was pinching flagstone and using um, that 
crusher fine gravel and making walkways with the the flagstone. So I was reappropriating the flagstone that I had and it was a lot of work and a lot of pounding and it gave me tendonitis. Mm. So I was trying to climb and work and it was hot and I probably didn't drink enough water. So all those things made it a little bit hard to be ready the first year. Mm. Gotcha. Well, thank you for sharing all that because it's it's really interesting to hear it from your point of view because I had a just a beautiful conversation with Nina about failure and her process on the nose and why she was not going back. And she, it, I mean, it was beautiful. It was a story of kind of zooming out and re-examining her life and realizing mm-hmm. that there was so much of herself in her life that she'd never leaned into and embraced and she wanted to embrace womanness and and see what that felt like. And she's been softening in all these ways and it's been really beautiful. And it was, it was so cool. Yeah. And, and so, so not the story that I was expecting from the Swiss machine, you know? And, and um, so, well, yeah. So it's, it's, she was more of the Swiss machine when we met, mm, let's say. Mm-hmm. And that's why I say that the obsession around climbing and, and I don't like the word failure mm. because she, yeah, she didn't get to check it off the nose, but failure seems like too extreme of a word to describe what, what she, she did. Experienced. Yeah, she yeah. she did a lot, but um, I think that she—I forget where I was going to go with this—but basically, um, I've seen her her personality ever since she met Jeremy and got pregnant. I mean, I know there's obviously hormones going on, but she she really changed. She's definitely, like you said, softer and, and embracing her womanness. And she, she definitely looks very, uh, female now. (laughs) Well, during the pregnancy, um, very voluptuous. And so like, she looks like a natural mother Mm. and, and very sweet, very, um, loving. Do you seek out mentorship or this role of being a mentor to younger women, or did that just happen organically with Nina? It happened organically. Okay. Um, and it's happened, you know, with Beth Rodden, with Katie Brown. Um, I would say Nina would be probably number three as like a significant um, role model kind of relationship. And, uh, and a little bit with Sasha now. I think she um, she respects where I've come from, you know, because it was a long time before she's even alive that I was climbing. And uh, I think she understands that the style was different and the whole culture has evolved. And I think she really, she respects what I've done and and I respect what she's done. And, and we discuss things like, um, you know, the controversies that go on you know, people criticizing her for saying this or doing that. And it's like, wow, it's really hard when you're under a micro or a magnifying glass mm. when you're in the media like her. Sure. And she takes it really seriously. So we talk about that stuff. And it sometimes is good to have a little perspective on that. That's not just you and your situation, but other people's viewpoint, looking at it from another perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's see here. Oh, I like this one. Okay, this is a question from Craig. Craig writes, Hi, Lynn. I'm fortunate enough to climb with a partner that is my climbing sensei. Hmm. Watching Ryan's footwork while he leads is a beautiful sight to behold. 
who is the climber that you have climbed with that possesses or possessed the highest level of footwork that you have ever seen? Hmm. Well, I was talking about Patrick Edlanger, but uh, I think in this case, he sounds like he's talking about more like a technical climber, like a Daryl Hensel type of guy, mm. you know, old school California granite climber, you know, uh, thin edges. And, and that's kind of gone out of style now because people like the steeper stuff with actual holds that you can see instead of these microscopic things. And you have to have a lot more patience and just kind of move slower at times, you know, transitioning your weight over onto some of these holds. And it's a definite skill that is sort of a lost art mm. for many of the modern climbers. So I would say that for that kind of technical footwork, it would have to be um, my old stone master friends. And uh, Mari was actually really beautiful to watch too. Um, Mari Gingri, more like a ballet dancer. Um, but yeah, Mariah Craner was another woman back in the day who had really good technique. Um, in today's day, I would say uh, probably Adam Ondra because he's just so beautiful to watch um, on site. He just makes it look like he's got it wired. And it's just because he knows how to recognize what to do with his body. And he's really in touch with his body. And so he knows where his foot need to go, his, you know, both feet. And, and he can kind of anticipate what he needs to do to get to that next hold. So um, that's a combination of footwork and planning. Mm. I'm always amazed by his speed and precision. I don't see anyone else moving that well that quickly. Like mm -hmm. he's just totally in his own league as far as that goes. Yeah. Yeah. Just flying up the wall. Yeah, it's impressive. I've got three more questions and they're they're pretty heavy hitters. They're really good questions. Uh, this one is from Christoph. Lynn is an inspiration. I know Lynn was the first woman to climb several grades and of course the first person to free climb El Cap and to free it in a day. Could she speak specifically about the mental side of pushing boundaries, particularly boundaries that aren't just personal, but those that seem like the limit of human potential? Hmm. Well, it's always the same kind of thing, right? You, you look at something that hasn't been done and you know that somebody's going to come by and figure it out. That's just the way I look at the way things evolve. That's how you felt about the, freeing the nose and... Yeah, and I remember living in France and I was climbing at this place called Volks. And it's like this steep cave, basically. It's kind of like an outdoor climbing gym. And the holds are big. And so I remember thinking, wow, that 513 is hard, you know, because back in the day, probably when was this, well, at least 20 years ago or so, um, 513 was considered pretty hard. And, and I remember thinking, well, one day people are going to just warm up on that. Those are big holds. It's obviously going to be a warm-up for somebody. And I knew that was going to happen because it, it didn't look that hard. Mm. It felt hard. And that was my perception that I kind of grew into and was still there. But I knew it would change. And I didn't necessarily know that it would be probably because of the artificial climbing walls everywhere. Um, that are accessible to people. And, you know, you get that little fire in your heart to, about climbing and, you know, these young kids, they just spend hours and get so strong 
So the physical strength that you get, the pattern recognition, like we were talking about with Adam, just seeing a situation and knowing how to do it right away, um, that all comes with climbing and training. So obviously the harder climbs will be, um, in my mind, they'll be longer with like boulder problem after boulder problem with no rest. That's the only way you can get really harder. You know, V16, of course, so somebody's going to figure out some V16. But imagine if you had a whole 100 foot or 3,000 feet of, I mean, it's a little unrealistic, but V16 after V16, that would be astronomically difficult. Mm -hmm. But maybe that would only happen really on an artificial wall because to find, you know, that kind of situation on a real rock will be pretty challenging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it's just a matter of the incremental increases in your fitness and your vision of what you can hang on to. Um, there's a, a story written by Bernard Amy, and uh, it's called The Greatest Climber of All. And it's, it's really a cute story because it basically talks about this, um, I think he's this Japanese kind of sensei type guy. And it's his vision about, you know, looking at the rock and seeing, you know, like he, at the end of the story, he, he's done some impossibly different, difficult things. And, and at the end, he's just content to just sit there and look at the, the rock and imagine it. You know, hmm. it's just, it's a funny story the mm -hmm. way it's told, but he does these really crazy hard things. Nobody can even believe it. And it's, it's just about mind over matter. Mm. And, uh, so I, I do think that our brains, our minds are really powerful. And if you have a strong enough motivation and the means to focus on that, you're going to be able to bring it to another level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to play that game, to think about that kind of difficulty of rock climbing. I mean, V16 after V16 is, that's one thing. But I mean, one thing that I'm sure we'll see, at least in my lifetime, is a V16 on a route, you know, a hundred mm -hmm. foot route where maybe you climb like 50 feet of 514 and then you have a V16 crux or something. I mean, yeah. that would be like 516 for sure. But as far as I know, no one's even trying anything close to that difficult yet. But, you know, V16 is becoming a lot more normal. So it seems like a matter of time if you think about it that way. Back in the day, they would chip you know, some, some people would chip holds. They'd say, oh, this is a blank section of rock. Let's just chip a hold in it. I mean, that doesn't happen that often, but I think that is a good argument never to do that because someday somebody's going to find a way to get past that. You should never just like carve a hole just because you think it'll be great to have that hole there. So I, I believe that we should leave the natural rock as much as possible because Somebody's going to be able to do it. If you can't see it, leave it for the next generation. Mm. This is a question from Emily. It kind of relates to the last one. Emily writes, I would love to hear about Lynn's mental game. She's written, believing in ourselves is the most important quality of all. How did Lynn learn to be independent from the limiting gendered cues coming from society at the time in order to realize her true potential? I'm a newbie female climber and I'm old. So I'd love any practical nuggets for cultivating belief in oneself on the rock, forming goals, finding out what you're capable of, 
and how to tune out the negativity or limiting beliefs that are projected on you from the outside or from internal? It's a big question. That's a big question. Well, to start with, believing in yourself is something that you need to perpetuate in your own practice. So set a goal that is achievable and be mindful of where you're not doing it as well as you could. Like, did you get distracted with that thought that, oh, I'm not strong enough or, oh, I feel bad today and I didn't sleep enough or whatever the excuse might be, be mindful and redirect. I call that the mental shift. So um, if you have what I call a red flag, meaning I'm tired, I'm confused, I you know, have a negative thought um, that you just recognize, don't resist it, accept it, and then shift to the solution. Mm. And a solution could be taking a big breath of air, shifting your foot position, turning a different way, again, broadening the options, don't get stuck in that tunnel vision. And, you know, just be patient because this requires waiting till the right moment. And if you go with a negative thought in your head, you're probably going to fall. Any negative thought, because the negative thought, it blinds you from actually following through with the move. So I think the more you can practice this and be successful, the more it's going to imprint and you'll have the right um, sequence of, you know, how you regulate the, the stress and, and stay focused on what you're doing and observe but don't resist those distractions and, uh, and believe in yourself. I mean, you have to start with the idea that I want to do this, therefore that is a kind of belief in yourself. Mm. If you're really motivated and you've got that energy in your stomach, you're excited, that's the best time to climb because you're psyched about it. And it's not like you're judging yourself and all this negative self-talk is coming up. You're psyched. And, and I try to remind myself of the positive affirmations. Like, I love climbing and, you know, just all the stuff that helps you be in that ready state mm. and in a positive state. Do you have any other go-to affirmations? I love climbing is a good one, by the way. I really yeah. like that because it's ob obviously it's positive, but it's it's totally removed from any sort of like outcome focus, mm -hmm. you know, because even saying like, I am strong, I am capable, it kind of infers that you're hoping to accomplish something. And yeah. I love climbing is just so simple and positive. It's great. Yeah. Do you have any other ones? Um. Well, like, a lot of people struggle with fear and we all do. I, I don't like falling. Um, and there are days that are better than others. Some days I'm like really psyched to just throw myself at, well, not really throw myself. Let's say I'm psyched to try my hardest knowing that I'm probably going to fall. And it might be a little scary, but that's when you prepare before you leave the ground and you say, I might be scared that run out up there. Um, it looks a little scary, but how many times have I fallen on things like this and nothing ever happens? So you just remember all of the times that you've fallen and it goes by so quick and it's over and, and you don't hit anything, generally speaking. So the fear that we have in our heads are irrational a lot of the time. So reminding yourself that that's an irrational fear, when you get to that spot, you've decided, well, I've decided that 
today I'm going to try. I'm going to try as hard as I can, and I'm going to put the fear away. I know it can be there, but it's not something I'm focusing on because I've already decided that I'm going to just zone into what I have to do at that section and not even think about the fall. So preparing yourself for the potential distraction and and affirming that you're committed to trying mm. in, in that style. What else could I say? Um, you, there was a part of the question that had to do with more of like the childhood thing of, you know, how did you deal with society's stereotypes? And I think that probably is consistent with what I was saying about this tomboy thing. Um, I was labeled different. I'm not the normal little girl that, you know, likes to sit there and do craft activities and wear a dress. Um, sometimes I like to wear a dress, but I don't want to be told that I have to, and I have to do it like this. And, and it was such a strong reaction f for me as a little girl to hear these comments like, gee, I can't even do that, right? The classic one that mm. I've told this story a lot, but somebody saw me do actually a pretty hard mantle. I've, I've been there since and it is, it is really a difficult mantle, but I was probably 14 or 15 years old and little skinny-ish looking girl. And this guy saw me do this move and he's like, gee, I can't even do that. Like as though he should be able to do what I can do. And I looked at him and he didn't even look particularly fit. He thought just because he was a man, he should be able to do what I was doing. And he wasn't looking at, well, she was a gymnast and she's, you know, got small fingers and on these little crimps or whatever, you know, whatever reason that he might have. Um, so I, I recognized that people would say things and believe in things that were clearly off. If you just look at the world and you recognize that at 14, well, that's yeah. pretty profound Lynn. that's pretty, that's, I mean, it's so cool. Yeah. Well, like war, I've always been against violence and that sort of thing. And I thought, well, why are we so barbaric in our society? Why aren't we beyond that? Why can't we get past these things? So I, I just never really understood the the kind of limiting thought processes and, and practices of, of society in a lot of different ways. And why should men get all the money and power and we do all the work and, and we, we have to sit there and listen to them and not be educated in some countries. You know, you can't even be educated because you're a girl. You're going to stay home in the kitchen. I mean, that's pretty obvious conflict for anyone. It's not so profound. So I questioned things from a very young age. I think it's important and healthy to question things. Say, so does this sound right? Does this sound fair? Um, maybe we could look at it from another perspective. And the perspective that I like is what's the best possible outcome, not just for me, but for me and you. It's a win-win thing. It's mm. not about I'm winning and I'm going to, you know, I'll be successful, but you aren't. You know, I don't like that kind of thing. I think that we're much better if we all work together towards having a better quality of life in so many different aspects. Mm. So it bothers me to see the, the discrepancy of wealth in our country and, and sometimes the laws that go along with it that let people get off hideous crimes just because they have a lot of money or power. Um, yeah. You know, I, let's not even get into Donald Trump, but I'm not a big fan. <laughs> and, 
what he's gotten away with is crazy. Yeah. And, you know, so there's a lot of things you could object to in this world and say, that doesn't seem fair. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to question that. Well, I love what you, I love the story that you told about the mantle and that guy, because what that reframe does is it takes the the sting out of a comment like that because it's no longer personal. Like how could it be personal if he's not even thinking about the fact that you've been a gymnast and that you have all these other strengths and attributes and you train all the time and all these other things. Like he's just, he's clearly making it about him and reducing the situation and not really considering who you are as a whole person. And if you think about it that way, I mean like, yeah, he's kind of an asshole, but it doesn't feel personal anymore. Mm-hmm. He's not judging who you are. He's just judging this like very surface level 14 year old girl that he's seeing on the climbing wall. So I love that. I think that's- so It was actual boulder. It was, a boulder. Oh, an yeah. actual boulder. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You were 14. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there weren't any climbing walls then. Maybe in England, they had a few dungeons, with wooden holds and stuff. Cellar boards. This is from Mark. Mark writes, back in the day, Lynn was instrumental in getting equal prize money for female comp climbers. Does she feel that women have reached parity with men in climbing? Not just comps, but overall. If not, what are the differences and why? Is it a problem? And if so, what can be done? Good question. Well, I think that climbing is a unique sport in the fact that women and men are closer than in a lot of sports like track or, you know, pure power weightlifting. And I think that there are some physiological reasons for that um, besides the testosterone and just the, the construct of a man's body versus a woman's body, uh, less body fat, body fat more um, for women lower, you know, so there's certain kinds of climbing, maybe slab climbing, where having a lower center of gravity is actually a better thing. Mm. Um, but not necessarily on the overhanging stuff. And on the most extreme boulder problems or roots, it's pretty much gonna be an overhang and and very long and hard moves. So uh, I think that, I guess one of the, pro- or the question was, is this a problem? I'd say, uh, what is he actually saying is the problem? Like, I think he's I think he's focusing the question on the first part, like the equal prize money for oh, comp climbers and okay, you know, we, okay. we can extend this to professional climbing and sponsorship and stuff. And I don't know if you know, but um yeah, he's just asking about your take. I on don't that. actually know what the prize money is for the competitions. Um and they didn't say my in the first competition that I ever did, they didn't even announce it. And I asked, and they're like, Oh, well, men will get I mean, women will get paid the same as men if they climb without their tops. That was the, the funny comment that the guy said. And oh. they laughed. This was in Italy. And uh, and it was in 1986. Right. And that's the way they felt about it. And other women in sports like surfing have had similar problems. And you have to look at the depth of the field. There's a lot of women climbing now as opposed to back then where there was a smaller group of you know, the best climbers. Um, but nowadays it's competitive in men and women's fields. There's a huge pool of talent. So whether it's more worthwhile to watch the men's or the women's, I, I don't think you can argue. So th- the problem part of that question, um, I'd say if they're not paying the same, which I can't verify if they are or not, or if they're 
paying the same depth, like top six, top six mm. kind of thing. Or, mm-hmm. you know, because they, I've heard that they've, they've given deeper prize money to the men in some competitions in the past. Interesting. Okay. Because of the, oops, because of the field and, mm-hmm. and the numbers of them. Um, but I think you can't argue that it's more interesting to watch the men than the women. I think they're equally interesting to oh, yeah. watch. So the value when you're giving money to these competitors, it should be equal because you're getting people's eyes on the, the content and it's the same. So you should pay equal prize money. And the fact that women are making such progress towards closing the gap and you know, the hardest boulder problems and things that have been done is pretty impressive. And I like to use the, um, the reflection that maybe eight years ago, um, Alex Puccio was climbing, I'm just picking her name because I saw her today at the market. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe her hardest boulder problem was a V, um, V12 or something. That sounds about right. Yeah. Eight right? years ago. Yeah. Well, she can do more than that now, mm-hmm. right? But why, what's changed in the last eight years? Only the mind has changed. Mm. Her body, she, yeah, maybe she's been climbing for a longer period of time, but I don't think that explains it as much as the mindset. Mm. She was capable of climbing V15 or whatever eight years ago when that was the top level for men. So if that's the case, then it's a psychological barrier. But the closer we get to the maximum level of difficulty, the more you're going to see that, you know, it's going to separate out. You know, there's certain moves on certain kinds of climbs that are going to favor men more than women. Um, But you might find, you know, a particular problem that would favor a woman and a man can't do it as easily or maybe not at all. I don't know. Like um, Meltdown, which has been done by a man, but Tommy claimed that it was too thin for him and, or just wanted to not bother with it. Um, but Carlos Traversi did it. And obviously his fingers are, you know, not that small. <laughs> <laughs> right. But no, the point really is, I think it's a psychological barrier that we come up against and, and our beliefs and what we can do. And, and certainly V13 is hard and V14 very hard, but like, the difference is how we perceive it in our minds and how we um, even limit ourselves in, in what we can do because we think we can only do V14 or V13. But in fact, you can do more. Mm-hmm. You just have to believe in it. Yeah. I mean, that is just kind of how human evolution works, isn't it? You know, like even for me, I have major psychological sticking points around difficulties that I perceived as being the top when I started, you know? And I mean, people were climbing way harder than this, but I just remember thinking like V13 is like impossible and harder than I'll ever climb, you know, just as an example. But man, if I watch enough videos of Drew Ruana doing a V14 in like an hour, then it starts to seem not as crazy, you know? Like maybe that is something to to strive for. And I think it seeps in over time and yeah, and that's true with climbing in general. That's true with women climbing. It's true with everything, I think. The bar just always, you know, creeps up and up and up. Well, what, what's that guy's name that did the long jump? He was two feet further than anyone had ever done in a long jump. And he did it in a, the Olympics. And eventually they got there. 
But why was he able to make such a literal leap beyond mm. everybody else? It's interesting. It is, yeah. Any theories? Just the belief? I think he had a good day, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, he was in the Olympics. He was going for it. He was going harder than he ever did, I'm sure. Mm. 514, I probably could have done 514 earlier than I did if I really pushed myself and tried it. I just never did. Mm. So I think the evolution of what other people are doing, we're, we're always watching what other people are doing, and, and that actually informs what we think we can do. So it is about your beliefs. Lynn, what are you most excited about right now? Um, well, I'm pretty excited to have a little bit more freedom to move around and, and climb again. Like, After COVID. Uh, also because my son is now 19. Mm. And, uh, oh, here, come here. Lay down. Lay down. It's going to make noise. Lay down. Good boy. Yeah, except for my dog and a cat, um, I really don't have to stick around, and my business, of course, but I can leave when I have guests that are staying for a while. But the idea that I can just go on a trip and I don't have to worry about taking my son to and from school or any of this stuff, you know, I feel like I have a, well, it's not a newfound freedom, but it's a, it feels almost like the old days, you mm. know, when I was free to move around and didn't have a lot of responsibilities. So I'm actually really psyched to go on some road trips. I can take my dog and I can get someone to help out with the cat. And my son can pretty much take care of himself. I mean, I have to manage certain things, but it's a lot nicer to have that look at my life and say, wow, what trip am I going to do now? You know, where do I want to go? I'd love to go over to Europe, but it's that's a little bit complicated right now for a lot of reasons, but I will go uh, hopefully in November. I love going to Europe. Um, Are you still fluent in other languages? In French? I can and speak French, Italian, and a little bit of Spanish. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And Italian was fun too. I, I am part Italian, just okay. a little tiny part, like one eighth or something. And my last name should be Fuscintese or it would be it's spelled F-U-C-E-N-T-E-S-E. -E -E. And, and the C followed by an E is a ch. So mm. it's Fucentese or Fucentese. I, I used to say TC, but I think it's wrong. Um, I used to go, my name is Carolyn Marie Fucentese. And it rhymed because my, <laughs> my actual name is Carolyn. And they, I just go by Lynn. But um, yeah, I'd love to, to speak Italian too. It's got a really nice melodic sound and... It's just fun. It, it gives you an insight into a culture in a lot of ways. And when you speak another language, you almost assume another personality. Mm. Like you become the Italian Lynn or the French Lynn. And it's really interesting. Yeah, I that's so cool. I don't speak another language. I speak a tiny bit of Spanish. And I've thought about that a lot. Like in what ways am I limiting like my discovery of myself or different parts of myself or sides of myself by only speaking English? Like compared to someone who has all these, so many different more ways to express themselves, it seems really limiting. Well, what it is, is you, if you learn a language, you're listening to how they communicate and the phrases that they use. And it's a, 
symbolic sometimes, and it's somehow related to a temperament sometimes. It's just really interesting how language and thinking are related. And when I say something in Italian, it's not the way I'd say it in English. It's not even, they put things in a different order, like in Spanish, like the car red. And so it really changes the way that you think about communication. Mm -hmm. I love that. What do you feel most excited about as far as climbing goes? What gets you well, psyched these days? Um, I'm really psyched about this new route. And it, I haven't done a new route like placing bolts and all that in a long time. The On the Maiden. On the one. Maiden, okay. yeah. yeah. And there's a little bit of gear. We'll place a little bit of gear on the first pitch. And I think that'll be a nice addition because it's 5'11", and we're going to have a double bolt so you can warm up on it and and then go climb wherever you want. You can continue or you could go to um, a few other routes. It's starting to get a few more routes around on the Maiden because it's like a hour plus hike. Mm. And there's there used to only be a few routes and now there's a handful of them all around the whole backside and the front side. And so I'm excited about that. Um, I really love that discovery of finding really good rock and and providing something that other people can enjoy. Do you have any guess as to how hard the full line might be? I think it's going to be hard 513. Okay. So my goal is to be fit enough to do it. So that might be a big goal for me right now. I don't know, but we'll see. It, there's a couple of spots that look like kind of hard boulder problems. And then, then there's this beautiful stretches of like, looks like pretty fun, like a couple Wacos on the wall. And then the last pitch actually joins that route that you were talking about, the made in time. Mm. So it's a really overhanging uh, fin of rock kind of, and the made in time goes straight up and, and we're just going to connect with the last couple bolts okay. that go out left. Gotcha. And then there might be a way, now this is the futuristic thing, uh, Sasha was looking at going straight up from, instead of going up and following this sort of feature out left, she's thinking that it might actually go straight up, mm. but that that is futuristic. That's like 515 land. Oh, wow. It's really tiny little crystals on super steep rock with not much else. But we haven't tried it, you know, because you can't really get onto the wall without any directionals or bolts to pull on. So you got to get the permit first. Yeah. Gotcha. So I'm psyched about that. And I uh, haven't really made plans about um, what I'd do over in France, but I have some friends that live in um, this place near Prell. Prell is a, a, I think it's like multi-pitch, but I forget how big, like 10 pitches or eight pitches, something like that. Um, and the guy that I did Mingus with, he lives right next door to this guy who's helping us with the documentary, doing some editing. He goes, ah, oh, yeah, my neighbor is this guy, Patrick. And he says that you climbed with them. And I was like, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> so he wants to take me on some routes um, in the Verdun. So, I mean, not in the Verdun, in um, Prell. Mm. Amazing. Yeah. Lynn, this has been so much fun. Thank you. I appreciate you so much for giving me so much of your time. This has been a blast for me. So fun to be able to get through all these questions from everyone who submitted them. Thank you guys for giving us your questions. Is there anything else that you want to talk about, promote, um, let people know about before I let you go here? I know 
you know, we talked, we touched on the documentary. Do you want to talk more about that and when people can expect that? Or is that still just a work in progress? That's still a work in progress. Okay. And what is the conceit of it? What is, what is the plan, I guess, for the documentary? Well, it's like a lot of my projects. I, I have ambitious ideas and I always underestimate how much work is involved. And this was a joint project, so it's not just me. And I have to coordinate with somebody who has a full-time job. He mm. works as a, uh, I guess, what would you call him? He helps drugs, uh, drug companies and, and uh, companies that have treatments for illnesses get approved by the FDA. So he works kind of between the FDA and the drug companies to try to get things legalized on the market. So he makes good money doing that. And um, I'm really happy to say that he's going to self-fund this and we're not using any money from any company. It's just going to be us creating it. And and because of the, you know, the unorthodox approach, I don't really have a time, you know, it's not like I'm a production company that says, okay, we got to put this out on this date and lock in the dates. It's not like that. And it's good and it's bad. Uh, a lot of my projects sort of linger for years, like this technique video or like the book. That was one of these projects that took me forever. <laughs> and then once I finally said, okay, I got to get this done now, it still took two and a half years to focus on it and, and finally get it done. So... To answer your question, I think it will take at least another year. Okay. And and even that, I don't know. What's it about? Um, it's about the journey of you know a unique life. Um, watching the sport of climbing change from what it was when I started, and some of the questions that you asked were will be kind of brought up in a different sort of way. I think people are curious about the same sorts of things. And, um, you know, being a single mom was another element of my career that was challenging. And I think a lot of women can relate to that and how you deal with that and, and take responsibility for that. Um, and also from a career standpoint, because people, you know, like Brittany was asking me, well, how do you become a professional? It's like, well, that's a, really difficult question to answer because everybody has different talents mm. and different ways to use their services or create a product or something like that. But that is the way that the commerce system works. You either have a product or a service and it's up to each individual to figure out what their best value is to, in the world. You know, And I could have done a lot of different things, but I think it's better that I stay focused on something that's unique that only I can do and mm -hmm. not a million other people. Yeah, I resonate very strongly with that. That's awesome. Yeah. Where can people buy your shirt? My website. Okay. Linhillclimbing.com. Linhillclimbing.com. Yeah. Okay. And photos if they want, you know, I'll sign photos. Oh, that's so cool. Um, I was approached by this company, which I, I feel uncomfortable about. Um, I mean, it's not a, the company's not uncomfortable. It's called Cameo. But what they do is they sell, um, uh, should I, well, I'll just keep talking. They, <laughs> they basically sell you as a service to people that say, want you to say happy birthday or congratulations mm. for your wedding. Mm -hmm. And I just feel a little weird. It seems a little strange. Like you show up there and. No, no. You, you take a video. Oh, okay. And, and you say, hey, 
whatever the request is, you're yeah. answering somebody's personalized message. Okay. So I don't know. It feels a little weird to do that. <laughs> would you do it? I don't know if I would. No, that would feel weird to me too. Yeah. I think that would feel weird. How does that connect to the website and the shirts? Oh, it's just, you know, services that people, you know, I'll sign a shirt and people do contact me for all kinds of things. They do want me to do that stuff. Okay. And it, But it's, a, you know, on occasion. It's not like that often. Gotcha. But there is a company that specializes in that. I know. I'll let you out here. I'll let you out. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Anything? Uh, there is a toilet here if you're interested. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still okay. Okay. Yeah, I think we've got like two minutes left. We can, okay. we can wrap it up. All right. Yeah. Was I in the middle of something? <laughs> the cameo thing, the shirts, yeah, oh, your yeah. website. No, yeah. They yeah. can order a tank top, Okay. a t-shirt, a photo, or a little card. Perfect. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I'll be sure to link to, to everything. Um, thank you again, Lynn. You're welcome. I've been very greedy with you. I've taken up way too much of your time, but it's been so much fun. I really appreciate all the stories and the insights. Um, yeah, just well, a real pleasure you. to talk to you. Yeah. Well, I wish you good luck with all your travels and the evolution of your presentations and, and your comments and insights as well. Very interesting to talk to you. And I really like your podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And am I going to see you in Waco? Because that's I forgot yes. to mention. Um, what I'd like to do with Waco, if I can get the money together, is put together like a camp for kids, teams, or anyone who wants to come and have a group. So I want to have like a kind of like a barn on the property so that you could have really nice downstairs area. Everyone eats, hangs out, stretches, watches whatever, maybe videos. Um, or movies. And then upstairs is where the kids stay or whoever. It could be a group of, you know, scientists or whatever that are just doing a little, um, you know, trip away just to do something fun. So I'd really like to do that because I think it would be fun for the kids to have that kind of experience. Mm. Oh, I love that. And Waco is such a magical place. I mean, once you get in there, it's just the one of the best days of climbing you'll ever have. And it's, I mean, I'm going to go back every winter, I think, for the rest of my life if I can. Good. <laughs> yeah, I really love it there. But yeah, I'll definitely be there. I'll be there in December and January this year. Hope to see you there. And for everyone listening, I will link to all the things in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. I'll link to the David Letterman video and the First Ascent video and Lynn's book and her t-shirts, all the things. You can find them there. Thank you guys for the amazing questions. You guys submitted some really great questions and they were really fun to, uh, to dive into. So thank you for that. And thanks everyone for listening. Thank you. That's it. All right. Hey. 
Hey friends, before you go, I just wanted to give you a quick update on Lynn's technique video called The Fundamentals of Climbing. I don't believe it's live yet, but it should be published any day now. Lynn is almost done with it. So be sure to check out Lynn's YouTube channel and hit that subscribe button so you don't miss that film when it comes out. And of course, you can find the link to her YouTube channel in the show notes for this episode at thenuggetclimbing.com along with all the other videos that were mentioned during this episode. Thank you to all of our sponsors for this episode. Be sure to check out the Grasshopper Board if you want to level up your training situation at home and have an entire gym experience right in your garage or house. Be sure to check out Athletic Greens for all-in-one nutritional insurance. Check out Rhino Skin Solutions for my favorite skincare products that I use every day to get me back on the rock faster. Don't forget to check out Frictitious Climbing, frictitiousclimbing.com to shop for hangboards and accessories. Be sure to check out the Arcteryx film Free As Can Be on YouTube. It's free to watch. You can check it out right now. And finally, don't forget to check out Chalk Cartel, my very favorite climbing chalk brand. You can find links to all of our sponsors along with the coupon codes in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. Thank you guys for listening all the way through this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed that one as much as I did. Thank you one more time to Lynn for being so generous with her time. I loved that conversation. It's October. Temperatures are getting amazing here in the Northern Hemisphere. I hope your climbing is going well. Best of luck on your projects if you're trying something hard or just enjoying the great weather. I hope you're having a good time out there. I hope you guys have an amazing week and we will see you next time. Like we do it.